What is going on, everybody? This is Wrong Real episode 542. It's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard. And today we're tackling the career of the legendary Harvey Keitel. It's an episode I'm calling Cut Up from the Butt Up because he's one of the most shredded actors who's ever lived. And who better to have this yeah, conversation with than the two biggest Harvey Keitel fans that I've ever met, Rob Cotto and Marcus Penn. Absolutely. Rob- What's up? Two guys who are also cut up from the butt up, but uh, yeah. So guys, <laughs> welcome back to uh, to Raw Real. Thanks, man. <laughs> Catch me up. I guess the last time we got together, what the hell were we discussing? I can't even remember. Oh, it was the um, 25th anniversary of Heat, yeah, Heat and, and Casino. Casino. That was awesome. Two movies that Harvey Keitel was not in. Yeah, but so could have just as easily uh, been, yeah, could have been yeah, in that wheelhouse. Been a part of. Sure, that's true. Oh man, Harvey Keitel in a Michael Mann film that would be yeah missed opportunity. Cool. That would be something. Yeah. Well, this is a giant topic, and we can go a million different ways, and y'all both have films of his that uh, are very important to you, but I think before we get into this, the traditional biographical study, like, you know, he's born in 1939, New York, blah, 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 where, like, where his parents came from, let's just talk with your first impression. Do you remember the first time seeing him, and do you remember the first time you learned like his name, like, where he kind of crystallized for you as a film fan? The wise guys, I think. Or wow. early, yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. I think wow. that that's was like eighty six, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't see it in eighty six. It was like a few years later, because uh, my dad, being like a big Joe Piscopo fan, I just remember that movie being on quite all a bit. the time. Yeah, it was like on regular cable, right? And then you just hearing the name too a- afterwards, you know, which is weird because to hear Harvey as a kid, to hear Harvey, Harvey Keitel's name in the late eighties a little odd because that was kind of. He had some gems, but I'm just speaking, you know, that was kind of like his weird, his the odd, 80s odd was period. his period of obscurity. And and we'll get into some, I, no, me specifically, I, I I got an early 80s movie that sh- should be mentioned, but it's true. Because, it, you know, a, lot, a big thing about Harvey Keitel is it's like his relationship with, you know, Scorsese, James Tobach. That was like, you know, both started in the 70s. And then early '90s on, that that's kind of. But there's that the whole decade yeah. that kind of gets forgotten about. And there and there's some some interesting stuff, good and and bad, uh, but interesting yeah, nonetheless. I think the first time I remember seeing him, or he made an impression, was when he said, "Yeah, don't fuck with us" in Rising Sun. And then when I saw sure. him in Point of No Return, I was like, "Oh, it's that guy." But then when I saw him in Pulp Fiction, that prompted me to see Reservoir Dogs on VHS. And then I was like, "All right." 
who who the fuck is this yeah, guy? I was the same way. And, I went and back. all started to kind of come back, and all started to kind of come together. Yeah. But first time I saw him, yeah, Rising Sun, Wesley Snipes, and uh, Sean Connery, and you know, fun. Is it a Philip Coffin movie? Or who who the hell did that? I can't remember. Yeah, no, no, that's yeah it, but like, I haven't revisited it like in thirty years. And yeah, I don't, I mean, but it's got some. You know, it's got some skin. It's got um, is it Shang Tsung from Mortal Kombat who yeah. plays the uh, yeah. Tia Carreras in that too? Yeah, man, hell yeah. But Mr. Kata, when did you first see the great Harvey Keitel? Well. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, I don't. I remember seeing Wise Guys early, but I don't remember seeing him in Wise Guys then. You know, I've I've been on the show before, and I've talked about my early exposure to to, to Scorsese. So my first real exposure was Mean Streets, and gotcha. that was when I was, you know, seeing that on black and white TV. You know, I was ten years old, so that was wow. That was the first exposure. The, but but it was. You know, I I, 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 feel, I feel very lucky in a, in a way. I mean, a lot of people that are listening to this are probably judging the hell out of my parents. Like, you let that kid watch all those movies when he was so young. You I know? hope they're judging yeah. him in a positive light. Saying, I oh, know. God, I too. This, what, what cool yeah. fucking parents. Because uh, Wrong Real is a pro. I mean, in my family, I have nieces and nephews who get exposed to all kinds of crazy shit. And as, as long as the kid's having a good time. Let them enjoy it. Like this whole yeah. attitude of we have to protect them from seeing something that might upset them. That's the parents wanting to, I interpret that as the parents being selfish, saying, oh, well, I don't have to deal with them having bad dreams or nightmares or whatever. But I feel like if the kids are eating it up, let them eat no, their right. fill. Or on the flip side, like what my dad, not, not so much my mom, she wasn't, but my dad was in the movies. He may watch like, oh, this is R-rated, but he would watch it with me. And it would almost be like VH1's pop-up video. Like he eh. put things in content and explain what things meant. As the movie went along, he probably also, also just liked that. having company on the couch. He's like, "Fuck yeah, yeah come true. sit beside me." No, yeah. sure, yeah, very much so. <laughs> and, yeah. and there was yeah. always the rule. the The biggest rule was, whatever you do, don't repeat anything that you hear in these movies at school. <laughs> yeah. If you do that, same, then you can't same. watch it. And that yeah. was, that was you know the big thing. But so no, no, it was Funny. seeing it was seeing Harvey. Then you didn't go to school and said, "I'm gonna pay ya." <laughs> pay ya. Oh wow. <laughs> That's a connection between yeah, that's Rob a, and myself. Yeah, we have a really strong connection with that with that one moment in that it's movie. Like what last Tuesday, yeah, that's the Tuesday before last, last week. That's before the one that's about to come up. My yeah. mistake. I'm sorry, Charlie. It was the week before. <laughs> Michael's been in my back all night. He's bothering me. Why don't you make your payment last Tuesday? What do you mean? I made my payment last Tuesday. What are you talking about? You paid him last week? Yeah, I paid him last week. Well, what did he say? He said I didn't pay him? He's a fucking liar. Where is he? You paid him? Yeah, I paid him. Last week? Yeah! Last Tuesday. Yeah. Charlie, you don't know what He's here. Where? Out front. He's here? Yeah. So what do I care? All right, let me go get him. We'll straighten this thing out, all right? Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, Charlie. What? Well, you're right. I'm right. Yeah. Was it last Tuesday? Yeah, that's the Tuesday. That was last week. That's before the one that's about to come up. My mistake. I'm sorry. Forgive me. It was last week. The week before that I was thinking of. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was, huh? That's right. What's the matter with you, Johnny? You kick around bullshitting people that way. You give you worried about something, you got to keep it. Um, but yeah, no, but but and but seeing him then, I I, I was I, and and I honestly, I mean, I saw Mean Streets in '91, so I was of the age when, well, not of the age, because I, I mean, like I said, I'm 10, 11 years old, but I remember Reservoir Dogs coming out, and and it being a thing. You know, a small thing, but at least it was out there. But I had made the connection between Mean Streets and Harvey Keitel, which is why I saw Reservoir Dogs and knew then that, wow, this Quentin Tarantino guy is going to be something else. But it was also making the connection of seeing Harvey in something like Sister Act. 
you see Sister Act comes right oh, there in yeah, 1992. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah, so you're yeah. like, okay, wait a minute. So he goes and he does the serious movie. And then he's in Sister Act. And then I remember seeing Taxi Driver not soon after that, around the same the same time. And seeing, oh, Harvey Keitel's in this movie too. Where? Oh, cool. And then I remember watching the movie and going, I thought Harvey Keitel was in this movie. It wasn't until the second time that I saw it that I realized yeah. that sport was it should be and it should be noted guy? too he was supposed to be you know the albert brooks part he wanted to be the yeah he was and originally sport was supposed to be like a whole different race but then harvey Keitel was like hey i kind of want to be this and it's like he's really yeah. only in three scenes although in a way it's like he is kind of throughout the whole movie he's just yeah. you know broken up so i, I you know my bet although i have to admit this might be heresy my one criticism against taxi driver is that we do have the scene with him and jodie foster because it's the one scene that's not through Travis Bickle's perspective. Admittedly, they do that little cheat where they show him outside and kind of looking up at the building. But the whole movie should be a subjective experience through Travis Bickle's eyes, in my opinion. And the whole movie is. But I feel like that's the one scene where Scorsese is like, well, shit, I've got Harvey Cattell. I kind of need to give him something sure. uh, something yeah, else sure. to do. And so, But for me, it breaks the form yeah. of what's otherwise a very consistent approach to the story. Sure. Yeah. Good point. But that being said... You know, no. So I, I, I came to Harvey right around the time that he was going to, you know, Explode. have this have this reemergence. Yeah, ninety two to ninety five you know? is the golden age of Harvey Keitel. You know, well, and and, and it's funny too because then you you watch the Academy Awards that year and you're like, oh my god, and this guy's nominated for an Academy Award. He must be the greatest actor of all time. And then you go and you do the history, and he, that was the only time he was ever nominated. He hasn't been nominated since. You know, for Bugsy. You know. Could have probably won if he wasn't up against Jack Palance. Well, City you do where I said on the Academy oh, Awards. Right. If you compare the people who have not won or not been nominated oh, no, to those I who know. have won yeah. or have been nominated, I much prefer to watch the movies of those who oh, have been left out of the conversation. I, I almost feel like, though, sometimes that Academy Award nomination for Bugsy was like his Dennis Hopper and Hoosiers nomination, where it was just like... He could have gotten it for something Hoosiers, else sure, but to that earlier, year too. Yeah, yeah. Well, and even that year too. I mean, Hoosiers and Blue Velvet. I mean, yeah. you give it to him for Hoosiers. Wasn't that's the really joke always like because of Blue Velvet, they couldn't find it like a they couldn't find a clip, so that's play. why they gave him the nomination. Yeah. They didn't want to show that, that, Baby that was always the joke on, exactly. on live TV. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I like Blue Velvet. Like, you know, yeah. like putting like the Blue Velvet in his <laughs> mouth. Well, I found out this amazing quote earlier. One of my favorite film historians, this guy David Thompson, wrote a very loving tribute to his career, but he was talking about how so frequently he's been overlooked and overshadowed and so on and so forth. But I, I just could this is the kind of film writing that is, just sets my imagination on fire, but, and also a little bit of humor as well. But he said, there are few American actors whose careers are so intriguing or so touching. Imagine a film about Harvey Keitel, the actor so good, so persistent, yet so regularly denied at the highest table, ceaseless in his fury, his bitterness forever hurtling forward in that cold, determined aura that is a mix of menace and resentment. What a role. And probably De Niro would get it. I was like, whoa. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about Keitel and De Niro, which I think goes to the beginning, because obviously, Who's a Knocking at My Door? I think it's the most overlooked movie in Scorsese's catalog. Obviously, you'll see, you'll say Silence, but um, but it's well, I feel like I so much that's of the a different di- no, overlook. Anymore. Yeah, it's but, a different type of overlook. But so much overlook. of the DNA is there, and it's so spontaneous, and it feels like a so, at times like a Cassavetes film, but other times like, oh my God, this is a fucking Scorsese movie. Right. Yeah. So that's really a French magazine, huh? Yes, I'm afraid it is. Why? Now, how the hell did they ever get a hold of the searchers? The what? 
The Searchers. It's a movie uh, made about, you know, about 11 years ago. And that picture of John Wayne is from that movie. Well, I don't seem to remember it. Oh, you know, with uh, John Wayne. Oh, that other guy was in it. Uh, oh, what's his name? He, uh, oh, he played Christ a few years ago in some movie. Uh, I don't uh, think I know it. Oh, was he Swedish? No, no, American. Roland. Roland, Roland. Recent picture? Ro yeah, just a few years ago. It's a Western. Yeah. Oh, you mean Jeffrey Hunter? That's right, Hunter. Uh, right, yeah. right. Oh, now you remember the picture. <laughs> no, I, I don't. <laughs> it was in color? Nope. No. No, huh? Well. Oh, wait a minute. You know what? Natalie Wood did a small part in that picture, one of her first parts, you know? She, uh, she had a big scene at the end there with, uh, with Hunter, you know? She comes, uh, running down the desert over the Hunter, and she says, uh, Aunt Mago, Martin, go, Aunt Mago. You know, she's, uh, she's trying to get him to, uh, to go, you know? Uh, I don't remember it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you missed a good picture. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, hey, there was this one scene in that movie that was a classic. You know, the, uh, the uh, chief of the tribe, his name is Chicatrice, Spanish for scar, you know? He talks English to John Wayne, and Wayne says, uh, you talk good English, somebody teach you, but real nasty, you know? And then when Wayne talks Comanche to, not Comanche, but Comanche, to Scar, Scar says, uh, uh, you talk good Comanche, somebody teach you, you know, but... Was... Sounds like a nasty fella. <laughs> Who? Oh, oh, the man with the, uh, the Indian. Yeah. Spanish for Scar, yeah. Uh... Oh, he was more nasty than Wayne could ever get. But then again, he was the bad guy. Oh. There were a lot of nasty Comanches in that picture. Nasty picture. <laughs> Well, then again, John Wayne could get pretty nasty, too, when he wanted to be. Oh, wait a minute. Was that the picture where Jeffrey Hunter's supposed to be trading Indian rugs, and he, he winds up trading for an Indian right. bride, and, and he doesn't know what to do with it? That's the picture. That's a good picture. Good. That picture was great. Well, uh, I'm not used to admitting I, I like Westerns. Oh, yeah? Why not, huh? Everybody should like Westerns. Solve everybody's problems if they like Westerns. Okay, I like Westerns. Okay, then. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that was some picture. Some picture. Boom, boom, boom. So Kytel was there first. Day one. And obviously before that, had been working, uh, like, studying at the actor's studio, been to NYU, three years in the Marines, but, you know. Court stenographer. Yeah, native native New Yorker and everything, but it's like he got, he was in the door first and could have been De Niro. Kato, in your opinion, how come Kytel didn't become De Niro. Because he's not De Niro. <laughs> but I feel like ta talent-wise, I feel no, no, for, no, me, no. for me, they're, I think they're, I, if I, you put them on a scale, that scale is going to be totally even and equilibrium. No, absolutely. But I think that when you get Godfather 2, anybody who's going to get Godfather 2 is going to, you know. That's a good point. Is is is, is, is going to, you know, and, and, and that role and do what they did in that role. Ooh. Do what they did in that role. Um, you know, there's no... There's no comparison. I mean, you have to live up to Brando, and then you live up sure. to Brando. You may even surpass Brando in that performance. You know that. You know, and not not to mention, you know, if you look at what came out six weeks before Mean Streets was Bang the Drum Slowly. So you have Bang the Drum Slowly, and and Mean Streets come out six weeks apart, and this is the same actor doing two totally different kinds of roles. 
you know, so you think Daenerys better at playing the game, kind of work, working the uh, the industry, no, working the room. I or? think I'm going to take the Harvey Keitel point of view and and say that a lot of the, both of their careers has a lot to do with luck, and you know what, Daenerys just you know got lucky with the the roles he chose and 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 the and the way that he pulled them off. You know, and because looking at their careers as a whole now, like I respond to movies that feel transgressive and angelic all at once, and there are very few movies that pull that off. But for me, Fingers and Bad Lieutenant are like the heavyweight champions of like mixing the mm-hmm. sublime and the sewer all into one story. And I feel like he has more of those kinds of movies in his filmography than De Niro. But when it comes to being a fucking star, then obviously, yeah, De Niro is the guy. So I guess they both got to have their moments but obviously De Niro's bank account I'm sure is considerably no, well, right. larger right but also you know can't I can't fuck with the intern but you know uh, and, and not the <laughs> well, I love the intern I'll apologize for the intern all day uh, I don't care I do it um, I'll do it but uh, you know you, you also you think about Harvey Keitel getting Apocalypse Now and then the whole controversy surrounding is that the turning the, point you know, it's a turning point, but I don't think it's the turning point. Because like, that's the moment where he could have taken the same route that, or the same opportunity De Niro had with Godfather 2 that was in Keitel's lap with Apocalypse Now. And he, no, right. what, he shot for two weeks? Yeah, he shot for two weeks. And it's funny, up, only up until recently, Keitel has discussed what, you know, his point of view to that. Coppola has said that he hired the, you know, the wrong actor. But. Keitel, as of recently, has said, well, Coppola wanted to contract him, and Harvey did not feel comfortable signing a contract, and Coppola let him go. Interesting. And so, you know, and there's a whole history, I was talking about it with, with, with Bill Tech last night, you know, there's a whole history of Coppola, you know, co- contracting actors to Zoetrope, and then when Zoetrope, you know, you know, as a way to fund projects, as a way to, like, hey, look who I got here. I got Terry Gar here. I got Harvey Keitel here. I got this one here. Look, we're making a movie. Let's act like we're making a movie. We're really not making a movie. You know, and that's kind of like, you know, and then all the credit to BT for, for dropping that little knowledge on me because, you know, but it also provides a perspective as to the business, as to, you know, what really went on with Harvey during that time. It wasn't necessarily his talent. At least I, w- I couldn't imagine. Because after Apocalypse Now, it seems like it takes 15 years before he starts getting big roles again. Yeah, close. Yeah, yeah no, close But I also, <clears throat> you know, I always say, I feel like I am glad it didn't happen, though. Right. Because, you know, it's one of, you know, the <clears throat> butterfly effect or one little thing changes and it's like we wouldn't have gotten the, you make an excellent point. He'll we would have gotten fingers, De Niro. period. That, a lot of stuff. You know, I just think. Apocalypse Now ended up being this huge movie. Who knows where his career would have gone, and he would have been, you know, he would have been in a point too where like Lawrence Bender, Tarantino's boy, wouldn't have been in such close proximity to get him to do Reservoir. Like you know, what I'm saying? like it just it wouldn't have. Well, and and, so. and and let's also ask the question like, what did you know? And 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 if I offend anybody or God forbid, I'm sorry, but like, what did Apocalypse Now really do for Marty Sheen? Like. 
Hmm. You know, you know. Yes, well, Mark. He made good movies. He did some good roles. He was in Wall Street or whatever. You know, and he goes and he does the West Wing for eight years. I mean, do we really want to see Harvey Keitel do the West Wing for eight years? I, I, I don't know. So, you know, what did it? Although, you know, did it make Marty the, Sheen, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro? The twisted no. side of my personality would love to see Harvey Keitel playing the president on the West Wing. Oh my know? god! Like, sure, but yeah. but but it, it, Marty Sheen doesn't say get the goddamn the, words. I know. You know, Marty Sheen doesn't get to the level of Brando or Robert Duvall ever. Yeah. And and and, sure. and and there's an argument that that Harvey Keitel Although, does. Like Martin Sheen was not Coppola's first choice. I know he wanted like Nicholson and Pacino and Robert Redford. He wanted all these other people and like it, you know that movie, that movie was just a, a catastrophe in so many ways and it's amazing that so much of it works as well as it does but it's sure. just it's a, a strange thing just looking at these like obviously Keitel's career is astonishing and he's worked with the best of the best. But I just feel like uh, he deserves he de- probably deserves a few more statues and deserves a bigger bank account. But sure. I think film I think film lovers will be discussing his movies for forever because he's got at least like ten movies that I would describe as like some of the best movies ever made yeah. that he's <clears throat> appeared in, which is uh, that is the ultimate achievement. Like, are you going to make movies that people love until the end of time or until people stop watching movies? Sure. And and you know to, to to just touch back on the whole De Niro Keitel thing, you know if Al Pacino had John Cazale, Robert De Niro had Harvey Keitel. Yeah. In terms of two actors going head to head with each other, oh, of course, or, or of working course. together, where they're better together, and they're totally better together, even in the shittiest of movies. Like yeah. you could look at something like you know he he shows up in Little Fockers, you know, and the one moment that they have together in that movie is worth like the price of admission because you get to see I the agree. two of them together. Even in The Irishman, that's one of the best parts of The Irishman. It is really that, is, especially scene, the the one scene. Like you got you a know? good friend here, you don't know how good a friend you got. It's like I think a lot of people. I get why again because the statue of stature or statue, whatever the term is, but it's like Al Pacino De Niro is always like the pairing, but it's like. De Niro and Harvey Keitel are just—it's like we're we're two years short of a fifty-year relationship from Mean Streets all the way through The Irishman, with shit like Copland in between, which I think people forget because I think sometimes Copland's they, they only share movie. so many scenes together. And I think there's like what one scene? No, they're only in one scene. Together. One scene together, but so that, it's kind of easy to forget. But it's like, but that movie's so great too, goddamn. But know? then, but then even like you know, Keitel shows up in The Comedian, which. You know, a lot of people haven't seen, but Harvey Keitel really, you know, grinds De Niro's gears, you know, in that movie. Or he even shows up as like his, you know, best friend in Falling in Love. Like they always work together. There's always, you know, there's a certain chemistry and a friendship between the two of them that, you know, goes beyond screen chemistry and acting and whatever. I mean... uh, you know, Keitel was the one that suggested to De Niro that he play Johnny Boy. You know, De Niro was ambivalent, you know, didn't didn't really want, didn't know what part to take in Mean Streets when, you know, he met, you know, Scorsese. Or they were reconnected, De Niro and Scorsese, you know? So it's, you know, Keitel, we owe a lot to Keitel yeah. in that regard. And I think that he would think that, that that's more important than, you know, Making making tons of money or yeah. winning that to, Academy Award or it's up to his fans true, to, he's to a complain true about artist. that stuff. Yeah, it's like, and I think it's so perfectly <clears throat> represented in the rollout for the Irishman, right? Because it was a little inconsistent. Because remember when that first, the very 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 first teaser dropped when it was just the the gun sound with the bullet dropping, right. 
he was one of the names that was like mentioned. <clears throat> right. Then and when Harvey like Keitel. Yes. Yeah, and Harvey Keitel. Then more stuff came out and then like they were doing these like it was so like uneven. Like some rollouts, it was like a picture, you know, of Pesci, Al Pacino, De Niro Scorsese, then others like Lincoln Center would have Keitel include like it was just very in in, in inconsistent and it was just like he's he's there sometimes he's there not and I just think that in a way is kind of re- representative of his career with De Niro being there also it just makes all the sense in the world yeah well I had an absolute blast preparing for this episode I uh, revisited a couple of movies I revisited for the first time in years who's that knocking at my door and uh, I was floored by how cool just I could listen to him rant and rave about the searchers and Man Shot Liberty Valance I was like <laughs> this is fucking just delightful just hearing him talk like a t- complete nerd to this girl who's totally uninterested I was like I've, I've been in that situation before but then like revisiting the duelists like I just people forget it's Ridley Scott's first movie and it's one of his best and while Keitel it's interesting seeing him as like a Frenchman who's having all these duels he's so physical and he's so intense and so mean I think it's one of the most emotional mm-hmm. and physical roles of his career it just blew my mind but the big discovery for me was uh, you recommended watching Smoke and then Blue in the Face and nah. I've never seen either of them and I, I'm always saying this and I, I, I stand by it New York in the 90s is as good as any era in any other country you take paris in the 60s or tokyo in the 50s but new york in the 90s is one of the great chapters in film history and i think smoke and blue in the face fit right in there yeah and going to i mean i always i grew up in massachusetts but my roots were always in new york new york city it's where i was born it's where my dad's family's from so it was always the like many times a year you know for the weekend going to visit my grandmother then going to either harlem or flatbush brooklyn or jamaica avenue and coming back to school with like this cool jacket or this cool mixtape or this cool album that didn't come. It was always New York in the nineties. It was, it was, it was like a bragging right to come to school on Monday to Massachusetts and be like, yeah, I was in New York city and I got all this cool stuff. So you're absolutely right. And yeah, the, like, like that whole indie scene smoke very, very, very much. So, um, well, I remember when I was in uh, college, I took an independent film class and they showed me a scene from Blue in the Face where Jim Jarmusch is talking about c- cigarettes. And obviously it was supposed to be the William Hurt character, but William Hurt couldn't come back. But I, that scene always stuck with me. It was so remarkable. And so here we are, it's like 25 years later, I finally saw the movies, but I could not believe, A, how different the two movies were, even though they were shot back to back with like the same casting crew, Just about, but yeah. wildly different stylistic films. And also how Keitel was a producer on the on the second one. And you get a sense of like, who is Keitel as an artist? Like, what kind of movies is he attracted to? It seems like Blue in the Face, in a lot of ways, kind of defines what he's been reaching for as a storyteller and as a performer for so many decades. It's so funny you say that, too. <clears throat> Doesn't the scene <clears throat> where he's talking about movies with Jim Jarmusch, that always reminds me of that early scene in Who's That Knocking but, at My Door? But me, yeah. Yeah, when he's, talk- <laughs> uh, uh, but. When he's yeah. talking about, it, it reminds me of Who's That Knocking at My Door when he first meets her, you know, I guess, the, what, in like a subway station or something, and they're talking. Like, th- those two scenes are so s- similar to me. And also watching that movie, it's like, for such a New York guy, even though he's from Akron, Ohio, <clears throat> it's like, God, why can't Harvey Keitel star in a Jim Jarmusch movie? I guess there's still time. <laughs> there's still time. Like, I'm not, you know, he's he, he's alive and well, So, but it's just like, it's like I've waited now, you know, that movie and came Jim out Jarmusch in 1995. Jim Jarmusch is no spring that's chicken like, either. And Jim that's Jarmusch, very true. That's very true. He started making, like, shorts, like, in the late 70s. Yeah. It's like, how yeah. fucking old is Jim Jarmusch now? I always feel like he's, like, one of those guys, like... He's 60. He's, got the, he's in his early 60s. He's, he's got the Peter 60s. Pan thing going on where he looks and feels perpetually young. Because he always had that, he had that gray hair since yeah. his 20s, so it's one of those things where it's almost like he was frozen in time a little bit. Cause, yeah. Because, you know... 
Yeah. Well, let's slow down and start talking about the essentials. Let's start with you, Marcus. And toward the beginning of his career, what is the first essential cocktail flick that you really want to place special emphasis on? Well, <clears throat> I got to bring up Mean Streets. And a lot of it has to do with a lot of recent discourse, you know, regarding content? Scorsese and content. The movies and, before 1975? Exactly. All the, of that. The fact that the, a, uh, a writer from the New York Times says he doesn't like to watch right. movies before the 1975 tells you all you need to know about the state of the New York Times. And I have to address hey. that, too. I'm not, we're not going to name <laughs> Whoa, names. Wait, but a minute, I, I wait, got, wait a minute. Really? Who said that? You didn't know about yeah. This has been the whole talk of Twitter the last like forty eight hours. Well, last three you know, days. I don't. You know, yeah. I might be on Twitter and I might look but at certain thing, things. No, but the but, thing is, I feel like every six or nine months that happens, someone of a prominent stature is like old movies, and and the problem is, I all morning. I think your response was, oh, I guess it's been nine months, like, and now somebody's having like some you know idiotic cultural exactly. Take. Things must be going back to normal. And, and I think that I'm not going to name the her name, but I got into it all morning with a uh, a female director that. A lot of people. A lot of people. She ended up blocking me. I was totally respectful. It wasn't that, but but the whole thing is she's doing her thing. Was what a lot of people are rewriting the story. They're like, hey, stop. Oh, it was it was you know, stop getting on people who don't like old movies. And then I had to respond. I was just like, you know, it's not about like what you want. That's not what people are mad about. It we're upset about the fact when people treat old movies like they're disposable and pointless just because they reach a certain age limit. And then it just all it went downhill from there. But to me, it, it is a slippery Whereas, slope like, of paintings. just... No one says, oh my God, like, I don't look at paintings before 1700. Exactly, what the hell? I don't listen hell? to music before 1900. It's just, it's a weird, arbitrary... Speaking of paintings, the guy there. from the New York Times is like watching movies before 1975. It's like watching ancient hieroglyphics. And it's like, it's like what the... F- like, what? And, and I wanted to say, hieroglyphics are fascinating. What's wrong yeah, with looking too. at hieroglyphics? <laughs> and, it's, and, yeah, and, and I just think it's a slippery slope and a slow opening to just like anti-intellectualism and this is me saying this anyone who's listening to i feel like at this point you know who i am either through my twitter feed or some of you know me personally so i can be silly i like dumb stuff but i just don't like we this like whole the thing stuff I, I, I don't like this <laughs> like like rewarding being loud and ignorant and i don't like dismissing art just because it reaches like a certain age limit and it's like there's movies to this day that don't hold a candle well, to movies. I don't old, mind people movies, advertising you know, their own like, ignorance or naivete or stupidity, but it's when somebody tries to advertise their own ignorance and tries to couch it from the point of view that they're doing something noble, like, oh, well, these films yes, are yes, yes. objectionable, therefore I'm not watching anything earlier than 75. It's like, don't wrap yourself in the cloak of social justice in order to justify the fact Completely that you don't like watching agree. old movies. Yeah. Just say, I don't like watching old movies. That's fine. Not everybody, like, or you don't even have to announce it either. Just like, don't like what you don't I remember, like. I remember and, being in class in 1995, being exposed to Citizen Kane in, in college, and one of my friends from my fraternity behind me going, "Citizen Stain, like this sucks," and like just screaming. I was like, Oof, Oof. "This is kind of embarrassing." So this is not a new phenomenon, but my friend behind me was not trying to, trying to take the high ground, right, right. for disliking Citizen Kane. Yeah, it, it's yeah. kind of like you're, you're, you got something bottled no, up, and it's also like acting. Like look at acting in films of the twenties, thirties. Like it's not like <clears throat> anyone who wants to jump on that whole argument about technology has changed. Camera, fine, but like acting, just raw acting has not changed. So it's like we're not going to dismiss everything post nineteen seventy five. Yeah. Also, why it, not? Just, just, I guess they really. I mean, why? Why 1975? Is it Jaws that they like? Or what's, I don't know. <laughs> I don't but, the, know. but this was tying into what? But it, it's a combination of like that, a combination of the weird Scorsese dis, 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 discourse, and to this day, it's like people. Some people are. I, I've, I can tell when people are joking and being cynical, but there are people who hard nose, double down, 
all he does is make mob movies. Like that that is an actual thing that that people once again, profess a- and advertising say advertising their own ignorance, yeah. So my whole thing is and then a lot of times they it, it's not mean streets that they mention or bring up. And to me mean streets it has mob. T- it's almost like an anti-mob movie. It it was kind of in. A, They're to, almost too low level to be even considered that's mob. The, well, I was gonna say it's like it, to a degree. It's like it's Donnie Brasco before Donnie Brasco. Yeah, it shows like, that like this ripping mafia off kids style. from Riverdale for like the money for firecracking. Exactly, it's, it's a small ball criminality. Especially <laughs> in contrast to it came. It was like you know around the same time, just after Godfather. So Godfather, you have, first when you have this grandiose, this is the mafia, and then you have. Mean Streets, where it's like the, these these are Street the errand people. boys. Yeah, what going to the you know? theater and giggling while watching the Searchers or uh, was it um, the, the Tomb of Legia, yeah. Legia or whatever? It's like these are just these just are their kids, knuckleheads. Yeah, yeah they're kids. <laughs> like oh, twenty dollars. You know, let's go to the movies. Like, you know, that's why and that's why you know that stupid kid pulls in you know an unloaded gun on someone who's trying to make a name. It's you know they're just they're just kids and and, and that's part Wait, of the who? reason. What you said? Who pulls the gun? No, when, John, when when a kid, when a young kid. I mean, Johnny Boy's nothing but a oh, young John, kid. Oh, John. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. You know who pulls a gun on Michael? Who's trying to be an upper comer? Yeah, you know that's a you great know, line and, delivery. And, right and, there. And, I love and, it. Says that. You know, well, yeah, well, no, that performance is just you know, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, when he when Robert De Niro enters that movie with the exploding mailbox, I mean, it's, yeah, like it, you know, where it's we're an going. allegory. Yeah, like it's it's, it's that, like yeah. it's like you know, he's exploding the mailbox, but he's really like just. This is I'm here. I've arrived. This is who and I it's, am. And you should note too. There's not much like he's so matter of fact about blowing up a mailbox too. Like that's where he's at mentally. Like this is just something this I do. Something, I blow up yeah. mailboxes in New York City. Because like this is just what I do. It's not a even kid. They're yeah. all kids. Which is why the Irishman is such you know but uh, another masterpiece. Kai tells it his early 30s though in Mean Streets. He still has that boyish true. quality. Yeah, he right. but he does. And who's that knocking on the door? Still have really have that boyish quality. Where at the party with no dialogue. It's just music, and they're all like wrestling and fighting and right. fucking around. And it's, it's a shame that we don't have anything from like when he's 20. But it's like he's 30 years old and, right. or nearly yeah. 30. Yeah. And he's but it's like that's our brief glimpse of Kai tells like a like a 16 year old knucklehead. Well, and and trouble. remember, I mean, you know, who's that knocking at my door? You know, comes out in 67, but they had shot that between. 65 and 66 you know so there's eight years in between the first shot of who's that knocking at my door and you know in mean streets where you know the Kaitel is the scorsese alter ego like ultimately at the end of the day like that's you know that's the role that he plays you know but going back to this whole you know pre-1975 thing you know like you know what there's i've i've seen every every movie that people have been talking about this year as great movies as you know whatever and you know what none of them are great <laughs> I, I kind of agree none of them are great none of them none of them deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as even movies that came out well, last one, because, year well they're so new so that just up but i will say i do think in a decade two decades i'm still going to be in love with another round Oh, but, okay. that's, yeah, but that's just still one movie. I've watched it's the last one scene, I think, 50 no, times. Listen, but that was also a great just part. That's yeah. a great recommendation on you. You know, that, and that's a, a great performance. And it's a great idea. My reviews got like 9,500 views. Oh, Usually awesome. for art films, my reviews on YouTube get zero traffic. Awesome. It's like, whoa. Good. People are you know? finding it. I think it's Mads. Event. It's Mads. He's, yeah. he's kind of that crossover. But, but none of them. Hold a can, and and it might be be, and it might be because of the pandemic and people held stuff back. But I'm even going to venture to say that even if the movies that were supposed to come out came out, 
none of them would be great. Of course, no, not. I would what, never. Black Widow. <laughs> well, I'm, fast I'm also and, thinking of like I'm like looking the, forward the, to that fast. You know, like like I was thinking of like Wes Anderson's movie. Like you know, still, big Wes, I don't yeah, think yeah, it would. Still. I don't think I would sit here and be like that was the best yeah. Wes Anderson movie I've seen since Royal Tenenbaums and Rushmore. That's never going to happen again. Like, but but I I just think that you know the the movies that people are hyping. You know, and you want to, and then or you want to sit back or, or overhyping. Mark, mark my words, though. When I don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but when Luke Wilson finally comes back into that Wes Anderson fold, I think we're gonna get. <laughs> no, I'm dead you serious. Luke or Owen? Luke, Luke, Luke Wilson. They haven't done anything since Royal Tenenbaums. It's been 20 years. They haven't done anything. No, but I mean, and I think I think he's that missing link to. And not that Wes Anderson is a great filmmaker, but I think there was something Future grounded. Man, baby. I want Future Man today. All three. I, uh, Darjeeling Limited should have been the three Wilson brothers, but anyway. Oh God, yeah, and I love that Kaitel's in the Wes Anderson universe now. Let's damn, not bring it back. That. Exactly, yeah. got to bring exactly. it back. Big time. Yes, yes. And he was, I don't know. I, I laugh at Kaitel uproariously, even when he's doing savage, evil shit. Yeah. But it's funny seeing him do light-hearted comedy in Wes Anderson and pull it off in in or Moonrise even, in Moonrise Kingdom. There, when they flash a, I think it's a newspaper article or it's a newspaper thing that goes around to the to the camp troop or whatever, and it's got a picture of Kaitel and there's a headline that says, "What are we men or mice?" Right, right. <laughs> which Fuck is yeah. a, which is an awesome bad lieutenant reference. How many times you be late for school? Your sister gets to school on time, huh? What's the problem with you guys? Want to be driven around like the president? What the? I'm your goddamn chauffeur. Dad, it wasn't our fault. Yo, yeah, whose fault was it? Mine? No. Aunt Wendy told us to take out the garbage, and she hopped up the, the bathroom. bathroom all morning. We couldn't get in there and push our teeth to do anything. We had to wait until she got out. By the time we got out, the bus was gone. So how are we supposed to be on time? It's the only way we're going to get there. Hey, listen to me. I'm the boss, not Aunt Wendy. When it's your turn to use the bathroom, you tell Aunt Wendy to get the fuck out of the bathroom. What are you, men or mice? She's hogging the bathroom. Call me, I'll throw the fuck out. The unbridled rage just spewing forth from like a river. It's uh, it's it makes me smile like a like a, also, like a super villain. I also <laughs> I don't I don't know if this is done intentionally. Maybe not. Who knows? But it's like his kids' reaction are kind of like, oh well, this is dad. Because like I feel like if my dad had yelled like that, I'd be like I'd be scared. But they're just like engaging back yeah. with him. It's like, oh, it must be Monday. Exactly. <laughs> right. I think that's another little interesting detail yeah. also. But I also but little Nikki. There's another example of just like, I don't really like that movie, I but the that fact movie. that he, he can be work. in it and he started he can, getting work, you know, yeah, I, I do like that he's in there. There are a lot of actors like Attell or Buscemi or whomever, like in the late '90s. Suddenly, they went from doing all these character actor films from the early '90s to being in movies like Armageddon, where they would just yeah. like explode. Yeah. And I'm, but once again, I'm thrilled he got the payday because I'm yeah. sure. Uh, I think Little Nicky was. Like like a seventy million dollar movie. It was yeah. like Adam Sandler just had these movies like Waterboy, just like wildly outperform yeah. what they should have. And so Little Nicky, which I think is unwatchable, yeah, had a big it, budget. It, it kind of is. And, kind uh, so is. so I, uh, when I first moved to New York and I was writing film criticism for my college paper, we got sent to press screenings and junkets and whatever. And the first one I ever got sent to was for Little Nicky. Oh wow! <laughs> and I met I met. Um, 
I met well, I met Adam Sandler. I have a picture with him, which I'll send you. You could use it, if, you know, for the. I for met the him promotion. as an intern at Out of the Blue Entertainment. He's a super nice guy. Yeah, no, he was yeah. he was he was great. As and long he, as you can talk sports, and I can't talk sports. Well, and it's funny because in that in that Q and A, he he talked about how he's like, I just got offered this Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I was like, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't want to do that. I, mean, I don't think I I, don't, I can't do that. I don't want to win an Oscar. I don't want to do anything like that. And wow. I went up to him at the end. I was like, You should really do that Paul Thomas Anderson movie. And he said, I don't know if I want to do that. That's not the kind of thing I want to do. And then I hate that actually went and did it yeah. not because of me yeah pta and the safety brothers did a whole podcast just talking about adam sandler yeah i never listened i still have did it's they good. ever talk about the like they talked about was the some ca- contention. comedy albums no but there was some contention at first between paul thomas anderson and uh it's like it was like a story that like from that like early between on pta and who and adam sandler oh, yeah. he, like early on he was doing the whole like oh i'm adam sandler who and then like pta was just like we're not doing a goddamn adam Sandler like and then like they kind of like had had a little thing on set. I mean, I obviously worked it out, but that that was like always the story that I heard. Oh, I, didn't no, I don't know. know. Oh, okay, I guess that's not nothing that they would highlight, but whatever. So, Mister Cotto, your turn. Early Kaitel, give us one of your essentials. Well, I mean, we could just blue collar. I mean, Fuck let's, yeah, let's go right to blue collar. Yes, yeah, man. Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. and that's been a favorite of 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 ours. Yeah, Marcus and I yeah. for I mean criminally underrated. Yeah, as far back as we can remember. I mean, that's one of those movies which I feel at this point now is just starting to get more recognition and acknowledgement. But yeah, no, and blue similar, collar, similar to Apocalypse Now, where the making of it is just as entertaining <laughs> as as, as if the not movie more so. Well. so give, give me some dirt. I've so. seen it and I really enjoyed it. Oh, they it. didn't get along. And all three the of them. Cat. All three of them hated they each other. They did not get along. Oh no, excuse me. All three of them and Schrader. Did not get along. Well, there are all these nice pictures of like the four of them all like leaning up against cars. One the well, the greatest contrast. <laughs> the greatest contrast is famously Paul Schrader. Oh, sorry, I'm a little loud. Paul Schrader talks about this. The scene just after they do all the crazy partying and they're all just like kind of zoned out on the couch. I love that. Just scene. before they shot that scene, is the last it was like day. a royal rumble, but it was also like this royal rumble. So like Harvey Keitel and Yafik Koto got a little physical, and then. Uh, Richard Pryor tried to like break a chair on Harvey Keitel, and then he tried to punch Yafet Koto, which ma- is hilarious because Yafet Koto is like twice si- his size. Yeah, massive size disparity on all of them. It's like pyra- it's like a pyramid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. So that's that's the funny thing is like these three guys. I guess it's a testament to their good acting because it's like they have to be these three best friends, and in real life they absolutely ha- hated each other during the making of that movie. Well, it's so. funny where I usually do not watch movies about like labor relations and unions and things like that. But on that subject, I can't think of a better movie yeah. than Blue Collar. It's, it's just fucking cast. Like I just can't avoid. It's just those three guys in one movie. It's just amazing to me, you know. And just seeing the way Richard Pryor's character evolves from the beginning to the sure. end, Richard Pryor can fucking act his dick off, and he's sure. got this incredible arc. And seeing him at the end as almost like the man, yeah, who's exploiting the worker. I was like. Well, I didn't see that coming. Yeah, at yeah. all, and it was just as, as absolutely fascinating. And yeah, that I love how Kaitel, just to bring it back to Kaitel, wakes up in the middle of the night or pretends to, acts like he forgot to do something at work, and rushes off to this orgy at yeah. Yafet Koto's place, who doesn't have any wives, well, wife, uh, doesn't have a wife, doesn't have any kids, and obviously can afford to misbehave a little bit more. Yeah. But yeah, I just I, I get, the scene that always comes back to me is so sad and so pitiful. It's when Kaitel's daughter's hungry. And he's explaining to her that the box of food that they're eating, whether it's like hamburger help or whatever, it's designed to serve three to four people. Therefore, she's not allowed to be hungry because they've it's served three to four people. And right. it's a really heartbreaking scene. Yeah. It and is. it's and then this and then the other scene that follows where the other daughter's upstairs and how come she's not coming down for dinner and 
she he winds up she winds up coming downstairs and he, she, he sees that she made mangled make, her teeth. She yeah. mangled her teeth with these makeshift braces. And yeah. oh. to me, that's one of the most honest portrayals of poverty and you know working class that I've ever seen. Yeah, it's, in that, any it's a weird movie. thing where it's like they're they all work, they all have jobs, but they're suffering. Sure. They're suffering. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially like I grew up and the way Yafet Koto dies. Oh, tragic. that was that 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 that's an early movie scene that like stuck with me as a kid where I came in I didn't even see that movie I, I saw that movie from a rut when he's painting the car like that's when I happened to come into my parents room and then he just like burst through the glass like all of that I was like is this a horror Pat- movie I just like it was yeah for yeah. real yeah yeah Paul Schrader I mean, obviously legendary filmmaker and he's got plenty of accolades I still think people sleep on him as a filmmaker in particular blue collar hardcore and American gigolo and cat people. Like just, he came roaring out yeah, of the gate with an incredible hot streak. And I guess, is there anything between cat people and Mishima? Was it the, like the one with the girl who joins like the radicals and goes like on a shooting spree? I mean, I think oh, the Patty does, Hearst Yeah. The pa- is the Patty oh, Hearst yeah. story in between those? And at any rate, Paul Schrader early in his career as a director was consistent as fucking hell. And blue collar. It, it, I mean, that came out what, two years after taxi driver? Yeah. Or? So 78. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah but yeah, he I'm, and Kaitel destined to work together. And it's a shame that they didn't get along, but they faked it really well. But I feel like of all the Kaitel movies from this period, that's definitely well worth revisiting. Yeah, Patty Hearst. And, and uh, oh, The Light of Day. Well, that's 87. You know, and, and, and Schrader yeah. also wrote, you know, Last Temptation of Christ. And, yeah, yeah. Which, you know, was supposed to happen in 83. And, and like a, Affliction happen. in the late 90s. Affliction's fucking rules. I oh, mean, in like, between cat people. Yeah, he... So. Uh, I you know, Affliction's good. Yeah, I, I like Affliction. I mean, it's an adaptation, so it's really, you know, not... Yeah, but I feel ball, like but. Keitel's been overshadowed by De Niro. And I feel like in a lot of ways, Schrader has been overshadowed by Scorsese. Yeah. And just yeah. Bible yeah. Scorsese, Scorsese has had the grander career. But I, I find Schrader's career as a writer and as a director riveting. But getting back to Keitel from this period, my two faves, I'm always torn between The Duelists and Fingers. Jimmy! Hey, what's this? It's money. No shit so fast, huh? She says you're terrific, kid. They give you any trouble? Are you kidding? I just said, listen, Dungeon Head, the next time my old man's coming up here, you understand? Dungeon Head, what do you say to that? Nothing, just got me the money. Get out of here. I swear. Get out of here. Don't him. The old man's come up and he's giving the money. I, I swear. Oh, shit. It's summertime, summertime, some, some, summertime, 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 summertime. Telling him for tell me. All right, I'm telling you. Turn it off. Can you believe this? This is the Jamie's man. Summertime, summertime. The most musically inventive song of 1958. What are you eating, shrimp? You're gonna tell me this song doesn't go with your shrimp? Hey, hey, fuck you! You, my, that's my son. You. 
about the radio. Relax, it's lunchtime. Touch him again, you cunt. I'll cut your fucking lips off, you cocksucker! Fingers. I think it's one of the most remarkable movies I've ever seen, and it keeps climbing the charts as one of my all-time favorite movies yeah. about New York. And it could not be more different from The Duelists. Yeah. <laughs> One's like Napoleonic Wars and Battles of Honor and Integrity and Reputation, and the other is just... Kata, how would you describe Fingers for those who have not seen well, it? Well, let's just take a moment. You know, you mentioned Fingers. You mentioned The Duelist. We talk about Blue Collar. We talk about who's that knocking at my door. The one common thread. And amongst, Tarantino. I know what you're going to yeah, say. Yeah, I know, but we, he's, we're not there yet. But the one And I don't want to lump him into this into this yet. But the one common thread is that, the, you know, we're talking about Keitel having an, you know, an affinity for working with first-time directors. Yeah. And he's loyal to them. Yeah, Ridley Scott, and, and, Quentin yeah. Tarantino, James Toback, Martin Scorsese. Who, am I, yeah. who else am I missing? I think that's it, but that's, that's a hell of a list. That's a, that's a, that's a good list. Yeah. And, 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 and the more established filmmakers, when he does, there's always a conflict. It's like he had Coppola, his thing with Coppola, Kubrick. he had his thing with Kubrick. You know what I'm saying? So I, I always found that in, very interesting. Yeah, he got, he got booted from Eyes Wide Shut, and he got booted from Apocalypse Now. Which makes more sense. Like, I, can't you see Harvey Keitel in that world? You know what I'm saying? Like, don't, I, Hey, respect to, to Sidney Pollack. I'm not like di- dissing him, but it's like... They should have hired Jim Brown to play it makes that part. <laughs> exactly. but it, it's, hey, man, relax. Speaking we're going to yeah, party. Speaking of fingers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Fingers is a story of a, of a concert pianist who moonlights as a debt collector for his gangster father. And, but it's also a story about, um, you know, sexual obsession and mental uh, illness, mental with his illness and, and clogging you know, up your prostate. Yeah. Right. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, the most pain, physically painful sex scenes ever, or just sex period has been, is all in Fingers where or your I silk. T- Kaitel likes to fuck a little bit too much and believes in heroic fucks, or as his, as his, uh, I guess his urologist tells him, is a dumb fuck. But he's in agony every time he comes, which is a, uh, it's almost like becomes like a Catholic kind of thing going. On. I'm not Catholic, but it seems like there's if something. Right. It's, inf- get it up. it's informing the story. Right. You know, if he could even get it up, you know, it's you know, you know, he, well, it's hard he to also... get it up when you got Jim Brown seducing two women in front of you. It's like. I mean, uh, and doing what they're doing. Harvey Cattell, yeah, Harvey Cattell's of... muscular and he's an enforcer, but you can't fuck with Jim Brown. I feel like it's a weird thing. While I'm rewatching, I've got it on DVD. Jim Brown is everything James Tobeck ever wanted to be, but couldn't be. Like when you, what, what they watching like <laughs> the pickup artist or fingers, the way he writes his male protagonists and the way they seduce women, like that rapid fire bullshit that apparently James Tobeck would do in his own life. Yeah. For yeah. me, it's not convincing at all. It's it's like the weakest writing that he does. Jim Brown's the real deal where you speak slowly and with confidence. Right. You, you wear a pink T-shirt and tight white pants, and you just you don't yep. need to prove anything to anybody. I feel like James Tobak's always trying to a little too hard to prove himself, and you can see that in some of his characters. Well, sure. and, 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 and you definitely see it if you've ever read the book that Tobak wrote about Jim Brown. I got it on my shelf. I did oh, just I arrived a couple no, months ago. I, I haven't. Yeah, no, he there's it's such an admiration, and it's like, how does this you know, and at that point this, you know. Skinny white Jewish boy from upper class New York City. How's he going to orgies you know, with Jim Brown? How are you right? You know, and and he and he writes about it from such a you know from a distance, but with a 
you know, an admiration. Well, I ordered it because on the Brady Sinell's podcast, he recently interviewed a producer who, in late in James Toback's career, was trying to produce a movie with him. And there's a lot of reasons to dislike James Toback. And this interview added additional ammunition where the producer was describing all the ways that James, to- James Toback will try to pull resources out of a project that may hurt the film and hurt those working on it, but will help him monetarily and how little regard he has for those people that he's working with. Mm. And just my opinion for Tobek as a human being, as a man, plummeted, even if I still regard Fingers as one of the great New York movies. But but during this conversation, he talked about that book with Jim Brown. So, all right, I got to get this fucking book. So I've got it on my shelf ready to go. Yeah, no, I mean, and... You know, it's I actually had Tobek sign a copy of that book at the Museum of the Moving Image when they showed The Gambler, which that was one of the great screenings I and ever that's went to. That's what Tobek to. wrote prior to Fingers. Right. Well, and, and, and that is probably the most autobiographical movie that Tobek ever ever wrote because he Carol Reese directed that movie. He didn't get to direct that one. And he, funny enough, he wanted De Niro in that role as opposed to James Caan and Carol Reese was like, yeah, no, I don't think Robert De Niro is a good actor. We're going to put James Caan in that movie. Interesting. Yeah, no, but, 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 but back, but back to the, you know, but back to fingers. I was talking yeah. about how I laugh at things that Kaitel does, even if they're not intended to be funny, watching him at a table, Talking shit, like calling somebody a cocksucker. Yeah. But while then, blasting summertime, summertime. But then mashing his fingers on the table while glaring at this yeah, guy. Yeah. It's so deranged and so unpredictable. And yeah. it's, there's something about Kaitel that's just dangerous. Sure. And you see it in these moments. But at the same time, he loves music. And it's like, it's like all right, this is a poet masquerading as a killer or a killer masquerading as a poet. And there's, yeah. there's, there's so few movies that go into that terrain that Fingers explores. Yeah. I also I <clears throat> I do have to say, uh, just for those because I know there's always a knee jerk reaction to like oh remakes suck, but the French remake of Fingers, the beat that my heart skip, it's worth watching, is yeah. so good. Yeah. And with Rob, I actually got a chance to talk to James Tobak in person and I asked if he liked it, and he said he did. He said he loved it, except he didn't. They they, they definitely changed the ending, the the very ending. He's, he doesn't grab. <clears throat> Was it Tony Sirico's dick? And oh no, that happens. <laughs> he just doesn't kill him. Uh, oh shit. Sorry, I didn't. Anyway. Want, I don't want to ruin it for anyone. Whatever. Beat the, it's actually it's been 16 years since that remake came out. You've had a chance to see it, but anyway, yeah, it it it. it I highly re- recommend watch both. It's an interesting double a double, uh, double feature, but um. Yeah. But it also, but, but but it is one of the great unsung New York movies, just yeah. from a time capsule point of view. I mean. If you look like there's, you know, he goes for that audition at Carnegie Hall. I don't know if anybody. I can ever... barely watch the scene. It's so uncomfortable. Like your heart just goes out to the guys. Like no, like you, he can play this piece. It's um, it's Bach's Toccata Ni Minor that yeah. he can play better than anyone else alive. But he can only do it by himself. It's like somebody who can only get it up when they're masturbating, but can't get it on with like Say, with an well, actual woman. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. No, that audition scene with Uncle June Dominic Chianese is one of the, you know. Arthur Fox. Yeah, I don't. It's one of the most unforgettable scenes of that movie where he just blows that audition. But back to my my initial thought about about that. It's it's just great. It's just fun to watch. You know, you, you know, he's walking into Carnegie Hall, but you see the surrounding area and you see what it what it looked like. It looked more like a neighborhood than it does now. Now it looks like you know. And I don't think New York's ever commercial. looked more cold than in this movie. Like when his father's. You're playing summertime, summertime when it's 15 fucking degrees out here. It's like when they're bundled up in all those coats and everything. Just right. New York has never seemed more oppressive. And you have all these great scenes like Danny Aiello and just like the the cast. Is oh, the cast unreal. is great. Well, I was just you about know? to get into that too. Like the cast, 
in so many of these movies we've mentioned so far are so New York. Like, like, like Tanya Roberts. From like <laughs> Coppola to Scorsese to Tobak. They, they kind of use Spike Lee also as another New York. Like they all kind of utilize a lot of the same, you know, it's like this rotating, uh, you know, group of actors. Yeah, it's, you feel like you're seeing like the DNA of the city and like the kind of the cinematic pulse of New York in some of these movies when it comes to the recurring cast, the way they pop up in different movies. And I Lenny just love Montana it. too. Don't serve yeah. slice pizza. Famous and they pro don't wrestler. serve slice. Famous pizza. pro wrestler, by the way. I always I feel like his. Yeah, it's like a double suck. Yeah. Double. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Say that a double suck. And one of the great soundtracks. You know, with, I've been with listening all that to "Summertime music. Summertime" for the last week on a loop. I, I looked up the lyrics and I've been singing along, but it's like, but what's the uh, the, the other most one? musically inventive song in 1958? <laughs> yeah. I had Neil Sedaka <laughs> or "Baby Talk" by Jan and Dean when he's boning Tanya Roberts up against the wall. Oh. Yeah, "Baby Talk" is fucking incredible as well. So Neil Neil Sedaka did a did a uh, I produced a show for Neil on on Sirius XM called "In the Key of Neil," and we did an episode on 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 doo-wop, and Neil picked. Summertime, summertime is a doo wop song that he wanted to profile. The on the Jamie's show. baby, my nickname is Jamie. Got my family. <laughs> That's and friends, right. So yeah, and um, and so when I was giving him notes, I said, you know, Harvey Keitel and Finger said that this was the most musically invented song in 1958. How and 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 the direct connection to that is him and Neil went to Abraham Lincoln High School together in Brooklyn. Did they? And the, yeah, they're the same wow, age. That's awesome. They're in the same class, along with. Um, I'm not sure wow. if it's the same class, but Lou Gossett Jr. also went to a uh, Abraham no Lincoln way. High School wow. around the same time. And Lincoln High School is the high school that Jesus Shuttlesworth plays basketball right. in and got game. So wow. the whole cinematic, wow. you know, universe connection, I, I, shared universe there. Yeah. I think it should also going back to what we were saying earlier, <clears throat> it was in talks, but James Toback originally had De Niro in mind for that role in Fingers too. And then it's yeah, like they can it, never, got to, it got to Kaitel. So it's not it's, it's another one of those naked things. Naked is Harvey Kaitel. I mean, Harvey Kaitel at the end of the movie, in the window, buck ass nude, looking right into the camera. Yeah. It's like, this guy is so wrong. Yeah. Like, he, he is yeah. off. Has How many times has he gotten naked on screen? Obviously, who's right knocking at my door? The piano. Fingers, piano. Great movie. Bad, bad, bad lieutenant, lieutenant, of course. <laughs> I mean, he kind of gets, he, he gets Dangerous somewhat game. naked in smoke. Oh, 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 not smoke. No, that holy smoke. Oh, holy smoke, holy smoke. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. With he's, Kate Winslet. Yeah, he's lying in bed with Kate Winslet. Yeah. When he's like 60. The yeah. players. There's, there's that one with he's in with all the guys and Jennifer Jason Lee. The play, the men's club or. Oh, I the, don't know. I, I remember know. seeing he showed, he's bare ass in that one. Uh, oh, look it up. wow. Um, he and Michael Caine should have gotten naked in youth. The uh, Sorrentino. I, mean, he's in I think pool. they did. They are in the pool. Yeah. Oh, that's a late. We'll get yeah, into well, that. I don't want to jump know. ahead, but yeah. The one thing about Harvey's performance in Fingers is is that it's just so fearless. Excuse me. That's my sink getting weird. Was, yeah, it was me. <laughs> no, no, but there's a there's a there's a fearness there's a fearlessness absolutely to Keitel in all of these roles. Whether it's he's one of the most fearless actors of the last fifty years. You know whether yeah. it's it's you know him playing, you know Ben and. You know, Alice doesn't live here anymore, and and you know, having to slap Ellen Burstyn, or you know, what did you do? What did you do? <laughs> a, you yeah. know, or or even just the way that he interacts with with Richard Pryor at, at the end of Blue Collar, like you know, it's like that's a lot another, of balls. To, that's another heartbreaking moment about that is the fact that like they were fr- like race meant nothing at the beginning of right. the movie. They they were all they, they were all, all the poor. same class. They yeah. were all in the same, but then by the end of the movie, just like you said, you know. 
They got Richard Pryor to be the man, and then it turned him into. Well, they use that. They use Harvey Keitel's That's the, the audio, you know, at the end of that yeah. uh, end of that film, and, and it, it, you know, it worked. It, it Yafakoto's audio. At yeah, the end so, yeah, that scene is so because it always reminds me of, um, you know, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing, the whole Timothy Carey scene where it's just right. like they actually do make a genuine connection. It's like, oh, we were both military guys, blah blah blah. But then it's like I gotta get this guy off my case, so I gotta say something racist to get. And, and One then of like those heartbreaking scenes of Kubrick's yeah. entire career. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, there's a heartbreaking scene in Kubrick's. Well, career. Kubrick always says he's cold and cerebral, but in the killing, that's the emotional kind of like most wounding scene in, in really? the entire yeah. film. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that. And Timothy yeah. Carey, he's such a weird guy, sells the scene. Like, yeah, he he, is. he understood what was going on. In the yeah. Scene. yeah. Oh yeah, no, thousand percent. Yeah. 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 Early Kubrick. Has some heart. Everything else might be a little cold. Yeah, I said I don't want to get into. I don't mind it either. But there's Listen, a cold. But there's a, it's also it's like. Well, but at the same time, eyes wide shut. Any guy who like has had that jealous like that to me is emotion. Also, you're in the back of the taxi cab, and it's just like, oh, she's thinking about having sex with some other yeah, guy. What you can the be fu- brooding like, and still be emotional. Exactly. Yeah. Like that's yeah, the, yeah. That, you know, it's, and like he breaks down in the bed and he's crying. I'll tell you everything. So it's kind of like you know, there's there's some people just don't like Kubrick. So they're like, oh, he's cold. Sure. Yeah. Well, also, I, I think some people like to say they don't like Kubrick because it's oh, like, oh, this is you know, yeah, yeah. Well. You know, the more I'm sitting here thinking about like how how cold Kubrick is, is like, well, that scene in Barry Lyndon when his kid dies, that's a that's a heartbreak. Of course scene. it is. Yeah. So. I like cold. I like Haneke. I don't think it gets colder than Haneke, and he's got he's cold as ice. Lots of emotion in his movies. <laughs> yeah, as but well. even but even like that ultimate moment in in Amour where you know, sure, there's a pillow yeah. involved. Yeah, you know, that's an emotional. Yeah, yeah. that's it's an still one of the most popular scene. episodes in Wrong Real History with. Uh, uh, really? And wow! I always yeah. thought people wouldn't be like as interested. But I think there's just so few podcasts out there discussing them that the people out there who want to hear a conversation about them, good point. They're like, oh, there's three to pick from. I'll try this one. Here's <laughs> another one. We, we we were talking about you know Jordan Peele off record and how I'm cautiously. Hannig is another one where it's just like I'll see anything he does, but after Happy End, it's kind of so it's like yeah. I'm, I'm so curious. Now, he he's had his taste of like you know he won the Academy Award. He won the Palme d'Or twice. He's got this like Palm so now. Stores. So let's go back to like horse d'oeuvres. <laughs> or <laughs> let, 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 let's go back to that heartless. I want the heartless. I want him to go back to like Austria. Make, make, make just like a cold Austrian film. But you know he what? never missed. But you know what? Though? He and Keitel need to make bad. Oh Lieutenant my god! Three. Him but, and Keitel. Oh my god! That would be amazing. But, but you know what? He's one of the few, one of the few filmmakers working period that. You know that I will whatever they do will see go Absolutely. and see because Absolutely. you know there's a, there's a, there's a there's a vision there, but there's also there's also an artistry there that yeah. that's there's a, unmatched. There's a level of skill where if you want to say, oh, he's the closest thing we had to like a like a Bergman today. Type. Yeah, I'm like, that's fine. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's definitely a current master. So. Yeah. yeah, current master without a. And, but sadly. Old as hell at this point. Well, of everybody's this, old as hell yes. at this point. But of though. this period, I think one of the movies that gets overlooked frequently, and maybe it gets overlooked because Garfunkel's not much of an actor, but I revisited this movie the other day. <laughs> Bad huh. Timing, I think, is Nicholas Rogue's strongest movie, most experimental movie, most like memorable movie. I agree. Teresa Russell's incredible. Harvey Cattell's incredible. She is a ma- uh, one, of the most, one of the most erotic movies I've ever seen, one of the darkest movies I've ever seen, one of the most fucking savage movies I've ever seen. Yep. And it's borderline true. I mean, Lori Bird, for those who don't know, she's the 
the woman in Two Lane Blacktop, that was Garfunkel's girlfriend in real life, and they had a very similar relationship. And her demise was, I mean, I guess Teresa Russell lived, but a lot of Garfunkel's relationship with Lori Bird was kind of reflected in bad timing. So it's kind of, you know, it takes on a whole nother level. Well, while you're on the subject, I think a lot of people out there have never heard of this. I first heard about it because of uh, the Magnificent Obsession Z Channel documentary, which you and I and Bo Oh, Tech so did covered. I. So did I. So, so did after I. I saw that, I was like, that's where. Yeah. all right, well, they, Teresa Russell showing her beaver. Let, let, let's check this out. And I was yeah. like, whoa, this movie's intense. So what, what, is, what is bad timing? That timing, it's uh, it's funny because Harvey Keitel, it he's he's like a supporting supporting character. It's it's an important role, but it's a movie that just kind of chronicles this kind of very complicated, complex, tumultuous relationship that just deals with jealousy and envy and and all kinds of stuff. And then we have an issue where this character played by Teresa Russell, she ODs, she winds up in the hospital, <clears throat> but there's some funny business that went down. And Harvey Keitel plays this American detective in Italy who's kind of... Uh, Vienna, sorry. Vienna, who's... Uh, oh, shout out to Hanukkah. Uh, who's kind of um, investigating what's going on because something something's not right. And they're just trying to figure out what's going on. And it's impossible... I'm not trying to jump ahead too much, but I have to pair... Well, let me, let me not get ahead. First of all, Bad Timing is an important movie because it's during that kind of that, that decade-plus period that's kind of considered his like dark period. But It's, it's like, also one of the last did 70s a movie with, movies. <clears throat> and, yeah. yeah. The, well, it's 81. 80, but it, I think it was made in the late, late 70s. But, but still. it feels like a 70s movie. Absolutely. Well, and, and, and it's also that period. I mean, you, ever, you, you talk about a dark period, not to interrupt you, but you talk mm-hmm. about a dark period. It's really not so much a dark period as that Harvey goes to Europe and makes movies because that's the he only place. He pulls a big Yeah. yeah. You know, and he, that, st- he starts doing like, yeah, like... Uh, he and Ben just go to... Baba films, like, yeah, like oh no, Death Argento, no, 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 not 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 Bob Ar- Argento, um, like Death Watch, and yeah, yeah, Saturn Three, yeah, <laughs> and uh, though I think that's well, that's not European, that's Stanley Donnan, but yeah, but 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 I was oh, also sorry. saying though, no, 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 it's fine. I I have to connect this movie with Clockers because Keitel is essentially playing the same type of character. He's this per, he's this detective. Who is weirdly emotionally invested in figure in in solving what what's going on? He's a bloodhound, and he's also and and two other things are important too. One, in in both movies, he's trying to solve something that is in a world that's that is just not his. So in Clockers, he's probably this Brooklyn detective, like he probably lives in Sheepshead Bay or Canarsie or Gravesend or something Brighton like that. Beach. And he's in the projects, in you know, in like wherever it is, Flatbush, Brooklyn or downtown Brooklyn and similar in bad timing. He's this detective. Sure. He's in Europe, but I feel like this relationship in this world that Garfunkel and Teresa Russell are in is incredibly foreign to Harvey Keitel. It should also be noted that around the same time at around the same timestamp in clockers and bad timing is the scene where Harvey Keitel gets frustrated. He grabs, you know, the person he's investigating and he starts shaking him up. He's like, just tell me what's going on. Same, he does the Mackay Pfeiffer. He does the Garfunkel. It, it, they're both around the same time, which I find obviously wasn't planned, but I still how think many, that's How many side-by-side side comparisons have you done on Twitter? I, I did one. I did, <laughs> I did one of, of that scene, and I noted how these moments happen around the same time in their respective films, and it's the same movement. He grabs, pick, grabs him by their shirt, and he's like, you know, tell me what's going on, and I just think that's so. I think that's really cool, funny coincidence. So, yeah, I like pairing bad timing with the third man because the, interesting, you know, well, they're both the, post for Vienna and the, another exactly. American, and yeah, an American in Vienna as yeah, well. No, yeah, it's it's, wow. it's it's a it's 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 a it's a great double feature. It's yeah. a great soundtrack. Yeah, you know, Nick Rogue 
you know, there's people who, you know, if you know Nick Rogue and you know the work, you dig the work. And if you don't know it, then it's a, you know, then it's an awesome discovery. And then maybe you don't like it. But, you know, movies like Walkabout and Performance and, you know, to culminate here. Don't look now. I think it, yeah. yeah, I think it culminates here. I don't, not this really. Peak, in, this is peak Nick Rogue. Yeah, it never this got is, any better. Yeah, yeah, it never got any better here. You know, insignificance, Eureka, they're just witches. Eh. Yeah, I mean, the witches. It's has, a hit, you know. Well, the, and the witches know, has its charms, yeah. but it's not. It's not performance, which I mean, I guess performance is more Donald Camel than Nick Rogue. And but, the man who fell for Earth. I mean, Nicholas Rogue. Oh, and the man who fell from Earth. Great, which, great career, yeah. but he's just—he's one of those guys. He's destined to be like a Criterion favorite for the rest of his for the rest he, of his. Yeah, he teeters that yeah. line between like Criterion favorite and like cult director, like yeah. sophisticated. You know, right. cult, cult but then if you go and you, I mean, you go and you look at, at at the career before he was a director. I mean, here he is, a cameraman on Lawrence of Arabia. Like yeah. he's, yeah. you know, he's doing some great stuff. You know, kind of in a similar way. Like Hal Ashby's a great editor. You know, and then he went off and he did. You know, you know that string of movies that, you know, was unsurpassed. You know, but no, no, bad timing. Good movie, Teresa Russell. Yeah, that's someone else. You know, well, by that it's point, the kind of movie that so rarely gets made now. Like we still get sexy movies. Like 365 Days last year was this wild Polish Italian co-production on Netflix. Took off like a rocket. Yeah. But we don't get these really dangerous, upsetting, really disturbing adult melodramas that explore sex and violence and just dark, sinister behavior. Yeah. And Bad Timing is one of those movies where it's like. For whatever reason, like the early seventies or the early eighties, we just had like, apart from like like Bitter Moon in the early nineties, but it's like it's one of those Bitter Moon kind of movies that people are just oh, terrified, a, yeah, terrified yeah. to go anywhere near. Yeah. But for the audience out there who appreciates filmmakers who are willing to explore those subjects, and Harvey Keitel, just like throughout his entire career, you keep finding him in these movies where you're like, oh, like they're really upsetting experiences. Yeah. But he just yeah. he is the master of finding these scripts and getting in those movies. Yeah. And he brings such a you know a, a, a human quality to to everything that he does that you know it's hard to take your eyes off of him. It's hard to follow. Even though him. his haircut is atrocious in this. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, bad it timing is. with that bad. <clears throat> I think his haircut yeah. and fingers yeah. and his haircut and bad timing both are equally ugly. And sure. And last intention of Christ, he's got so many bad haircuts. By the time you get to the early nineties, he kind of settles in on what he wants his hair to be yeah. for the rest of his life. But he's got a, he's got a couple of movies where yeah, it's, it's back like, to the seventies. Yeah, but it's like but a couple of movies it's like, dude, you should have gone back he's to the, the hair. He's got the red curly hair and last temptation of Christ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love Carol. the red. Well, whatever. Yeah. yeah, you know, everybody loves giving him so much shit for the last temptation of Christ. Like I know something. it's only because of the hair. It, well, yeah. well, no, in that he's got this Brooklyn accent and he's Judas. <laughs> That's enough. We have to. Yeah, he's I think we need because you already that. talked about the duelist. We do need to go back yeah. for a second. He and Keith Carradine both just use their accents, but yeah. it's more. But it it's works. obviously highlighted with Keitel because he got this hardcore Brooklyn accent, and he just loans it. To, there's characters where he just like he's supposed to be a guy from L.A. He's supposed to be a Frenchman. He's supposed to be, and he just always has that accent. But if and he it's did just a like, French it accent and the Duelist, well, exactly. I think because it's with yeah. a British cast, but he and his co-star are just doing their American accents. I actually appreciate that. It, I, yeah, I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. It makes the performances feel more emotional, more I mean, raw, yeah. more authentic. And, and there's a lot of movies like that. I mean, you yeah. know, it, it's it's that whole, the early tests, you know, Kevin Costner tried doing the British accent in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Oh. And he just got to the point where like, dude, just, just, just be normal. Americans cannot do European accents. Just be normal. Yeah. So, yeah. Can you leave us alone, please? Your duty is to victimize me. Am I mistaken? You've chosen to hunt me out? 
in the drawing room of a lady toward whom I feel Sir, the deepest... Sir, I your inexpressible sentiments. But I can assure you that the hunting was no choice of mine. You have insulted me. You have insulted me! I have strained my patience in order not to do so. And I demand an apology. This is too ridiculous. Really too ridiculous. A proper general's poodle. Can you fight? I see no reason whatever for us to fight. What reason would you like? Shall I spit in your face? Shall I cut a chunk out of your backside, or would that be too ridiculous? How do you get back to your general now? Through the window? Hmm? I believe you're really quite a madman. You draw your sword. You draw your sword. Oh, my God, I'll chase you down the street like a chicken. You will chase me nowhere. I will be delighted to fight you at the first opportunity. You fight now. At this moment, I'm here on duty, and you are under arrest. Now! For dueling, you ape! Now! You fight now. Where? In the garden. Seconds. You want seconds? I'll find you seconds. Old man, stand here. And watch me. But he's brilliant in The Duelist. All he is, accents he is. aside. Yeah, and also, it's that's like, a great movie. It's a French movie. Everybody's British apart from these two guys. Nobody's doing the right accent. Well, that's what so, I was going to yeah. say. Like, There's so many classic films that are supposed to be set in France, but they use English actors, so it's nothing new. It's not like it's right. new. I just think because of Keitel's accent. Yeah, Barry Lyndon uses fucking Ryan, Ryan O'Neill, who yeah. cannot do an accent to save his fucking life. Yeah. It's fine. Just As long as the actor's got emotion. I mean, anyway, maybe I'm like contradicting myself because I'm holding different movies to different standards if I really like the movies but I guess if the emotional honesty is there I get less preoccupied with the accents but what it's very distracting is when actors try to do an accent that's beyond their reach so yeah John Lurie when he pops up in Last Inception of Christ does not try to do an accent and it's like I'm glad he did not try to do an accent it's so funny you say that I've been explaining uh, because it's just not my wife's world but I've been watching Painting with John on, on, on HBO and then if you don't know who John Lurie is, it's kind of like who he, who is this guy? He's that just some guy who has a show, face, rocking on a saxophone. <clears throat> but then, exact, but you explain. I, I, I started surprising myself. I was just like, well, you know, he was in these important indie movies. Oh, but then he also used to be the music director for Conan. Oh, and he was an actor on Oz, and he did the music for Excess Baggage, and he did all like so. He's all over the place. Renaissance like, man. He, he, Renaissance he was a staple sure. in that late seventies, early eighties New York City downtown art scene. It's just like. There's so many connections. And then, then again, it's like, yeah, he shows up in a Scorsese film. It's just kind of like he's the perfect guy to give a show because he knows so many people. And yeah, I love he gave he gave his blessing to my I, I used to do I could still do it. But I used to do this fictitious series on Pinland Empire called Fishing with John, like season two, three, four, five, six, seven and keeping up with the time. So it's like in ninety five he would have had someone like Tarantino on and all that stuff. So he came across it and he sent me a nice message and said that he liked it, which is because by all accounts, he's a big curmudgeon. So, yeah, yeah I met him one time and talked to him and it was one of those awkward conversations I've ever had where he came to UVA to present the first thing, the first two episodes of Fishing with John. And he also showed Stranger Than Paradise. And wow. afterwards, you know, like, I think like 11 students showed up. And so I just rushed right up to him. I was like, oh, my God, it's so amazing. You're down here in Charlottesville of all places showing your stuff. Like, I'm just like, it's so cool, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, 
yep. I was like, oh, but it's, so it's just like, it's really cool that you're down here. And he's like, uh-huh. But like, we just give nothing. Right. And I was Sounds like, right. all right, well, I'm getting shy and awkward. And I was like, I'll see. And I'm, a friend of mine was like, dude, you just totally like, you blew it. I was like, I didn't blow it. He was being fucking weird. Yeah, I don't think, yeah, no one, yeah. I actually, it's funny. I, I One of my earliest gets on Pill and Empire was an interview with John Lurie. And he was very talkative and nice. And I wanted to get him to do a second one. And in the email, I was like, hey, do you want to do maybe a longer interview? He, and his response was just like, yeah, yeah, sure. I was like, okay, when when do you want to do it? And he was just like, yeah, yeah, sure. Like, he just kept – I was like, all right, I think you're in a weird space. I'll just leave you alone right now. But I got him once. I got, I interviewed him once. So, Well, Mr. Cotto, explain the – we're not going to call it the dark days, but the, the, the era of obscurity gets like, I guess, between Bad Timing and the Pickup Artist – he goes. Into- he goes to Europe. He does Broadway. I believe he was in Hurley Burley, on Broadway. And he oh, gets, was he? Oh, yeah. wow. And he gets stuck in a lot of these kind of bland, generic, kind of tough guy roles that almost feel like early James Gandolfini or something like that. Like, and they, like he starts getting a lot of work that's beneath. Like I found in pickup artists that the part was beneath him and beneath his talents, even though he gives oh, it all funny. that he's got. Well, I mean, and it's produced... both together and get shorty. Well, and it's, pro- scene, and but... it's produced by Warren Beatty, and, you know, there's the relationship with Toback, and, you know, I guess that there's some, you know, Robert Downey cred, you know, floating around there because of who Dad was and, you know, what he was about to, you know, he was going to become... I don't want to say he was going to become a big star, but he was on his way to being, you know, a thing. It's funny you mentioned James Gandolfini, you know, tough guy James Gandolfini roles. Those are all good roles. <laughs> like, Gandolfini was... Yeah, I mean, True Romance, he fucking crushed it. I mean, he he's he might be the most memorable thing about True Romance. I mean, aside from... When he's, the, like, talking to Patricia Arquette about how, like, the first time he killed somebody, he threw up, and I mean, it's, it's good stuff. No, I, and, I mean, aside from, you know, the, the, the famous encounter between, you know... Oh, Dennis Hopper. Dennis Hopper and Christopher, Christopher Walken. Walken. That's the most memorable scene in True Romance by far, you know. So, and the way know. she kills him, it's like, oh, yeah. holy well, right. But yeah. but Gandolfini, you know, in a way, you know, he got very lucky with, you know, I think that if Gandolfini never did Tony Soprano, he still would have done, you know, great character work, you know, like yeah. that. He would have been a Harvey Keitel. Yeah, you know, sure. He was know. a good heavy. You know, he was a good <clears throat> heavy to, to get shorty. Uh Terminal Velocity. He's he's a good uh, villain in that he, with the Russian accent and everything. Um, good actor. Yeah. Well, good what actor. are the gems? I mean, prior to getting the nomination for the Oscar, prior to getting kind of rediscovered in a lot of mainstream Hollywood movies, and prior to I mean, 1992, I feel like is Harvey's year, where it's just like if you do Reservoir Dogs and Bad Lieutenant in the same year, you're gonna be remembered forever. But like, what are the, the what, piano, are, what are the gems during the uh, this period oh, of obscurity? Well, no, I mean it's it, it it is Bugsy, it is Thelma and Louise. I mean these are great movies. These are movies that if you put on, I mean I know people well, have how do you write two jakes? Well, and and they're now the, well, the two, I've been putting it off for decades. I finally saw it for the first time ever. Prior to this, I love seeing Jack and Harvey locking horns, but goddamn, it's a long fucking movie. Like yes, well, and then if you and, look at at Tony Richardson's The Border, you know, eight years before the two oh, Jakes, yeah. oh, you know, they yeah. they lock horns there too. You know, the two Jakes was supposed to be a lot different than you know it turned out to be. You know, Roger Ebert gives it a great review, and I stand by, 
on, on, on Ebert's side I think if it had been this. an hour shorter, it would have been a down and dirty, great film noir, but it just, you feel the length. I mean, I kept, I was, yeah. I was checking no, my you, watch. No, you feel yeah. the length, yeah. and, and Nicholson never the quite. Madeline Stowe, when she gets her kind of dress yanked up, and yeah. Nicholson spanks her, I was like, all right, I am rock hard. <laughs> well, and, 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 you know, Nicholson, it's like you I'm know, trying to be a gentleman. It's like, <laughs> hold still. <laughs> you know, Nicholson had, you know, Nicholson got very lucky with Easy Rider and, you know, becoming the star that he became. But, I mean, remember, you know, this was a guy who really loved film and wanted to be a filmmaker. And if oh, you look yeah. at the movies Writing that he movies, made. Writing movies, directing movies. Correct. Nicholson, everybody thinks, oh, he's a joker. He's like, you know, a big movie star. He's a film freak, yeah. And was he was willing to roll up his sleeves and get movies made. And he directed two Jakes mostly because Robert Town was being so fucking difficult. And basically, it's like, all right, well then, the, there are a lot of people who are counting on this movie to move forward. Well, and they couldn't bring Broman in either. I yeah. mean, you know, because of you know extenuating yeah. circumstances. But you know, if you look at Drive, he said, which not a not a great movie. But I also thought that uh, like, he and Monty Hellman could like run out into the desert right. and make two movies instead of one and things like that. They're just, they're just yeah. he's just a very creative guy. Yeah, no, I mean if you look at the, the Monkey's Head, which he wrote, and oh right, yeah, you yeah. know, and, and and even Going South, which is a a lot of fun. You know, no, no, Nicholson, you just know, a good true guy. renaissance. One man. of my favorite stories I ever heard about him. The one time I got to play golf at Pebble Beach, and I do not play golf, so I did not deserve the opportunity. But it was dropped in my lap, six thirty a.m. tea time. But my caddy. Had played golf a million times with Jack Nicholson and Clint Eastwood because it was Pebble Beach. I was like, dude, I was like, well, I suck at golf. I don't really wow. even like golf. Tell me some Jack Nicholson and Clint Eastwood stories. And he said, all right, well, the, my favorite story about playing golf with them is that they were playing whoever lost at the end of 18 holes was at the pick of the bar tab. Then kind of gentleman's bet. But then they get to the bar after the uh, 18 holes, and Clint Eastwood leaves the bar to take, make a phone call. And while he's gone, Jack Nicholson orders to like, 12 rounds of drinks for everybody there. Gets a card game going. So Clint Eastwood comes back from his call, and Jack Nicholson's just like ignited this party. And everybody's like, woohoo! <laughs> like, we love you, Clint! Like, thanks for the drinks! <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And, and Jack Nicholson just, you know, that million dollar smile, knowing that he had, like, you know, <laughs> had one over on Clint. And so, like, I, I, just, I just love everything about Jack. Yeah, no, but if the two Jakes had been, you know, the success that everybody had intended it to be, it was the start of Kaitel's comeback. Of Kaitel's comeback. Yeah. Didn't happen. And that he's way. good in it. Yeah, he's very good in it. Yeah, but he's also very good in everything. Yeah. You know, the, so and like we were saying off record, though, <clears throat> it's true. It's like the Reservoir Dogs thing is kind of the what what always often gets credited as the start, but it's really the year before. Like not not ninety one was a crazy year for him quietly, apparently, because people don't cite that as the start. It's always like Reservoir Dogs. But it's really, to me, it's yeah, Thelma and Louise. No, it's Thelma and Louise. And a reunited Which goes back to what you were saying. Yeah, the guy who the started, yeah. he started with him. So It's yeah. a big hit. And he plays, if you want to call it a moral center. Yeah. No, he, he is. You he know? Is. Him and Michael Madsen are both the kind of like, they, the, those, especially, well, Michael Madsen specifically. But Michael Madsen and Harvey Keitel are always kind of like, ah, oh, the men are trash thing. And I think a lot of people look to Thelma and Louise as like the kind of movie to kind of like incorrectly hate men it's like well just so you know there's some good guys in that like the movie's about them but they get support from these like good guys like like they you know that you know they try they're shitty men <laughs> you know to right. be clear there's some terrible men in that movie are you but there's implying also that all you know, men are not trash how dare you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so i love i i don't want to divert but i love michael madsen in, in, no in, i do in love michael madsen too and i like it's that it's like you know a little you know precursor to reservoir dogs with the two of them Man, could you believe Mr. Blonde? That was the most insane fucking thing I've ever seen. Why the fuck would Joe hire a guy like that? 
Now, I don't want to kill anybody. If I gotta get out that door and you're standing in my way, one way or the other, you're getting out of my way. That's the way I look at it. Choice between doing 10 years, taking out some stupid motherfucker. Ain't no choice at all. But I ain't no madman either. What the fuck was Joe thinking? Can't work with a guy like that. We're awful goddamn lucky he didn't tag us when he shot the place up. I came this close to taking his ass out myself. I mean, everybody panics. Everybody. Things get tense. It's human nature. You panic. I don't care what your name is. You can't help it. Fuck, man. You panic on the inside. In your head, you know? And you give yourself a couple of seconds, you get a, you get a hold of the situation, you deal with it. What you don't do is start shooting up the place and start killing people. No, what you're supposed to do is act like a fucking professional. Psychopath ain't a professional. Can't work with a psychopath. Because you don't know what those sick assholes are going to do next. I mean, Jesus Christ, how old do you think that black girl was? 20? Maybe 21? If that. Hey, look, did you see what happened to anybody else? Me and Orange jumped in the car, ground floored it. After that, I don't know what went down. Well, at that point, it was every man for himself, man. As far as Mr. Blonde and Mr. Blue are concerned, I ain't got the foggiest, because once I got out, I never looked back. What do you think? What do I think? I mean, uh, you know, the cops either caught him or killed him. Got a chance to punch through, you found a hole. Yeah, and that was a fucking miracle. But even if they did get away, then where the fuck are they? You don't think it's possible one of them got a hold of diamonds and... No, no way. No way. You'd be so sure. I got the diamonds. <laughs> My boy. Where? So you know? I know with Reservoir Dogs that he was shooting that while they were trying to get Bad Lieutenant put together. I know Bad Lieutenant was supposed to be Christopher Walken. He backed out. He said, look, but this guy... Harvey might be your guy, and I think Victor Argo played a big role in getting it into his hands as his well. His best friend. Yeah, so let's... Along with De Niro, Victor Argo and Harvey Keitel are, were very close. In terms of what the two of y'all know about the year 1992, which for me is, is Harvey's year, yeah. what does the beginning of his year look like? What does the end of his year look like? I mean, between, if, like I said, if you've got Reservoir Dogs and Bad Lieutenant in the same year, you're doing something right. Just walk me through how this, like, this astonishing year of filmmaking unfolds. Well, with Reservoir Dogs, wasn't it... Lawrence Bender, Tarantino's. I don't think they work together anymore, right? No, the Bender and Tarantino don't the work version together. The version I remember was that Bender said, like, because Tarantino wanted to shoot it for super low budget, like black and white, like in one yeah. room. He's like, well, give me a chance to see if I can raise some money. And right. it was when they got it into Harvey Cattell's hands that suddenly they get Tim Roth and they get all these other people. Yeah. And suddenly just the cast came flooding in. Well, yeah. what happened was there was, was something a, like an acting class. Yeah, there was an acting right? class yeah. that Bender was in. Who, by, by the way, I, I got to interject real quick. If you watch Lion, if you watch a, a bunch of early, early, very early 90s films, you'll see Lawrence Bender in these like one role things. Specifically in Lionheart with Van Damme, the second fight that he gets Lionheart. into when he, when he, uh, th there's this guy heckling Van Damme. He's like, he loses the bet because Van Damme beats the guy. And he's like, get up, Sonny. I could kick this guy's ass. And then Van Damme goes up and like, it's like, what did you say? That's Lawrence Bender. It, 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 no, it oftentimes it gets that, that that's Lawrence Bender in, in 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 Lionheart. So he's he's been in the scene, you know, for a minute. But no, he's right. in a lot of those early '90s LA films as, as, with these like one 
one bit, you know, part. But it seems like without Keitel assembling the stock company for that movie, then Reservoir Dogs would have been a very different thing. Well, yeah. the, the thing about you know, so, you don't get Lawrence Tierney in there. That ca- oh, the well, cast too, who was supposed to be like James Woods was supposed to be Mr. Pink. Um, no, no, no. Yes, no, no, no. I take that back. First, it was supposed to be James Woods. And then famously, it didn't even get to him. His agent was like, "What is this dumb indie shit? I'm not, I'm not passing this along to James Woods." And then years later, he said, "You know, funny story. Someone actually wanted you to do Reservoir Dogs, but I thought it was going to be terrible." And James Woods fired him. He was like, "You, I could have got Reservoir Dogs," and then he fired him. And then after he couldn't get James Woods, before Buscemi, Buscemi's boy Vincent Gallo who was living in L.A. at the time, was supposed to be Mr. Pink. And he had almost signed on. Like, Tarantino tells the whole story on, on Howard Stern and on another podcast. Like, at the time, they were kind of cool. That Like, they were hanging out. He thought he was going to do this movie. And then him and Tarantino suddenly just stopped getting along. I feel like that was probably on Vincent Gallo's side. But, Whoa. yeah. and still, So, Buscemi was the third choice, uh, essentially. But anyway. Well, um, well what happened... Well, to go back to the Lawrence Tierney thing, to see Timothy Carey play... The role of Joe, you know that was oh, right. To yes, yeah, too. yeah, it was, yeah, it was, you yeah, know, it just was. going back to Tarantino's like love of yeah. film and which I also believe know, that that or, yeah. that that the the first screenplay or the, the original screenplay of Reservoir Dogs was dedicated to Timothy Carey. Oh wow! Or and a number of other people, but the whole history with that Bender's in an acting class and the acting professor is friends with Harvey Keitel right. and yeah, passes the script to the acting teacher. The actor teacher reads it, likes it, and says, I'm going to pass it to Keitel, passes it to Keitel, Keitel loves it. Tarantino always thought that it wasn't Keitel, it was Keitel. So when they first met, he's like, Mr. <laughs> Keitel. He's like, no, it's Keitel. But Harvey had seen something <laughs> in the script and in, and, in, and in Bender. He said, you know what? You need to really read New York actors for this part. You've only read people who are out here in L.A. So let's, you know, let's read some New York actors. People with some spine. So he, <laughs> you know, Keitel fronts the bill. He, you know, they fly to to New York together. And Quentin tells this great story about how, you know, Harvey buys a ticket in first class. And they get on the plane. And he's like, well, I'm sitting here. And you guys are sitting back there. <laughs> you know, but they go to New York. And that's where they find... Buscemi, and that's how Buscemi winds up, sure. you know, getting into that, you know. And so they make that movie, and it's one of the most controversial movies of the year. And then Keitel comes out with another movie that year, which is the most controversial, one of the most controversial movie. movies ever from, yeah. any, from any era. But man, yeah. just whenever I hear about Keitel and Reservoir Dogs, it always reminds me of this podcast. Which I'm always trying to find. I can never find it. Jay Moore and Bill Burr were doing a podcast, and Jay Moore starts imitating Keitel as Mr. White, but just talking about just random things. And Bill Burr, you can just tell his face is in agony because he's just, he's laughing so yeah. hard. But it's that, I get, from this point forward, there's a certain, not like a shtick, but Kytel has like a certain delivery style, which is adorable, if, especially if you're a Kytel fan. But Jay Moore just absolutely, he just gets the, the cadences and like the pronunciations and the rhythms. But yeah, obviously Reservoir Dogs launches a giant directing career. It's an incredible ensemble cast. And then he wraps that up. And he steps on to Bad Lieutenant, which is a movie that I've been watching ever since my second year in college. My roommate was upset. He came back from the summer break. It's like, Hancock, saw this movie over the summer. Oh, <laughs> Bad Lieutenant. Like, Cartel's like jacking off on the side of this girl's car. She's screaming. And like, the way he described it, I, I didn't really know what to expect. 
but this is a movie that goes to the darkest places a movie possibly can. But at the other time, uh, but on the other hand, has these like moments of like incredible kind of personal like reflection and honesty with like Kaitel in a really horrible time in his life, like screaming at Jesus and like, "Where were you? Where were you?" And it just feels so vulnerable and like, yeah. it feels almost confessional in a lot of ways. But I just can't say enough about this movie and. I am a, an Amazon stockholder. I almost sold on my Amazon stock the other day when I tried to watch it on Amazon and they only had the blockbuster version from the 90s. Oh, man. It's like, y'all fucking suck. You, so I got the NC, NC-17 Blu-ray and I'm a now a happy boy. You want to talk about like <clears throat> promotional stuff. I remember having no idea what that movie was about. There were like when I was, yeah, I guess when I was 11, not in Amherst, but the town, two, two towns over that had all the... the the two indie theaters, the cultural stuff, this town called Northampton, there were two, it was like at one of the two local theaters, there were the, the two posters on each side because there were two posters going around. There are two famous posters for Bad Lieutenant. One, it's like him like holding the gun and kind of like pointing it at yeah. the camera. Toward the end of the movie, and then pointing at the two boys. And... Yeah, and then there's the other one of him being naked and it's like, it's not <laughs> even so, it's like, it shows his crotch but it's just kind of darkened out. Yeah. And I remember just ba- like seeing... And looking- Jack exactly as, in his fifties, shredded and abs, seeing pecs, the whole deal, and being eleven, like I said, cut up from the butt up, and you walk, walking <laughs> down Main Street North. Actually, it's a side street on Main Street, but anyway, you see these two posters, and they're both the same movie. It's like so. There's like a guy pointing a gun, and there's like a Nick. What is this movie? And obviously, I didn't <laughs> see it in the theater, but I remember like maybe maybe two. Th- this was a while. It, you know, for those who don't, for you youngsters, it took a, sometimes it took a while for movies to come out to rent. And also, I remember this movie only had like a couple hundred theater run, did well theatrically yeah. with like festivals in Europe, but it was all about that NC NC seventeen VHS cassette, which is so weird that it came to the small town in Northampton, you know, Massachusetts. But I remember like two years later, in my local video store, Video to Go, down the street from my house, and I remember seeing the box for it. It was that box of him kind of like pointing gun, the gun while he's in his car, and I was like, oh, this is that movie. And I rented it, and it was just like, "Whoa, what the hell is this?" I didn't know, you know. I mean, I didn't the know. moment nuns are being anally raped while Jesus screams on the cross, yeah. like, "All right," yeah. which is not in the R version, which is not in the R it's version, it's not in the R version at all. Neither is the the famous tweet tweet nude scene, and even the pledging my love by Johnny Ace is not in in, in that moment. They use also, another. It's a short movie. It's like an eighty nine minute movie. Like if they come, no, no, the no. R version is like seventy minutes. No, <laughs> no well, you're 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 a little. It's overexcited. They only cut five minutes out of. But it's five. It's five important minutes. Crucial minutes. Well, no, it's real. I mean, I, well, aside from the assault, in you know, with with the, the two girls that he pulls over, yeah. you know, they they lop that off. They lop the rape scene, and you know, they cut seventy five percent of the rape scene, and they cut the nude scene. Other than that. You know, the movie's the same. Yeah. It's um, interesting. We learned just recently, like less than two years ago, we went and saw, again, me and Rob, we went and, and learned new information about, like, the whole ending scene, how he got people to, like, go up to the car you right. know, at the end because nobody, because it's, like, yeah, so we saw it. Yeah. No so, location agreements, very few paid actors, yeah. but it, you can tell. You can't quite tell. Are these just random people who think they might have just witnessed a yes. drive-by? Yes, and it is. Yeah. It is, and <laughs> I found exactly. out it is, yeah, because they, they did it, and if you notice, that shot's in real time. No one was going up to the car like and he thought he was. And then people start going up to the car. Because Abel Ferrara went up off, off camera. He's like, hey, I think something's going on in that car over there, and then he got people to go over to, you know. Yeah, yeah that's one of, you know, in terms of, you know, independent filmmaking, you know, 
balls to the wall type filmmaking. I mean, like when we shot yeah. Hobo with the High Kick, we would just kind of find a corner and shoot a little scene. Yeah. But they were doing the same. It was a million dollar movie. They would just walk through a nightclub with like the crazy lights and everything. But the cast is incredible. The script, I mean, Zoe Lund, both as an actress and as a screenwriter, she kind of co-directed some scenes, but obviously you had played a massive role with the script. And it's like shooting yeah. heroin for fucking real in the movie. And it's like one of the, I mean, it's so tragic and sad what happened to her, but she's yeah. this brilliant 17-year-old girl who had like had like a scholarship to Columbia, gets hooked on junk. And between this and Miss 45, those kind of going to kind of live in movie infamy forever. Yeah, but this exactly. movie, I feel like it's Keitel, Ferrara, and Lund just coming together with this astonishing collaboration that makes most movies from any time other than 1992 just seem kind of cowardly and tame by comparison. And also it's a big thing that, you know, it's also to note too that movies like Reservoir Dogs and Bad Lieutenant, you know, one, you know, a West Coast film, an East Coast film, both indies, those were two of the like bigger films to kind of spearhead that like indie movement that was like, you know, it was there, but it, after those movies, like everything that, after Reservoir Dogs, that was the like, yeah. no, everything changed know. after that. Yeah. And, 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 and and even you know talk about Keitel's work. I mean, in that in Bad Lieutenant in particular. I mean, going back to what I said, you know, a few moments ago about him being absolutely fearless. I mean, there's some raw, uh, there's raw emotion, and there's what Keitel well, does. Great in this scenes movie. like when he and Victor Argo are talking with the other cops about like uh, what happened with the nuns, and the guys like just watching Keitel like, "Am I Catholic? I'm a Catholic." Like, and then when Victor I'm Argo's, a Catholic, and Victor Argo's like, "Oh fuck that shit! Like, fuck that noise! How about the Met?" There's so many brilliant character actors in this movie, and they're not... Our boy Paul Calderon. Yeah. yeah oh, yeah. underrated. Yeah, great New York City <laughs> actor. He's so great. Going back to... Cl great scene in Clockers. He's another just a, a New York staple. He came oh. this close to being Samuel L. Jackson. That's why he's in Pulp Fiction, because yeah. like Tarantino felt so bad. He's like, I'll give him a role in this movie. And it's interesting. I got a... Uh, damn. I, I Two thoughts at once. Yeah, it's, it's cool that he's in Pulp Fiction. But I, I learned that, and quite a few of the things that I've said... Look, anyone who knows me, I've got... I don't have the nicest things to always say about Quentin Tarantino, but so much of my f film site, so much of my tweeting in terms of like comparing movies and stuff like that, so much of that started with buying those two special edition DVDs of, of um, Pulp Fiction and Jackie Brown... I don't know if you had ever had those. It was like the double disc and it had the option if you watch those movies. I think they did one for Reservoir Dogs as well later on, but like yeah. it's like a pop-up video. Like as you watch the movie, you learn this is a reference to this or Robert Forster uh appeared in this movie. That this scene is a reference to that. And I remember being so captivated by it. I think so subconsciously so much of my online film persona comes from the knowledge of films from a filmmaker that I have a lot of conflicted issues with. So, But at this, conflicted or not, I can't deny that so much of my early film knowledge came from those Tarantino movies. So I just want to put that out there so so everyone knows that. I, I have to admit that. I, I'd be phony if, 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 if I didn't say that. But anyway. <laughs> right. Well, we, thank God, have some Katzis Deli arriving as we speak. So we're going to oh. press pause, cool. stuff our faces with some Rubens, and we'll be back in a few moments. One sec. Darling, my love will be true. Always. 
always and forever I'll love just you Just promise me, darling Your love in return Make this fire in my soul, dear Forever Alrighty, so we are still in peak prime Kaitel. Martin Scorsese, yeah, he called uh, The Bad Lieutenant one of his 10 favorite films of the 1990s. Oh, I never knew that. That's all. Yeah, that's wrong. in the Siskel and, well, the Ebert episode. Siskel had died at this point. But uh, they did a best of the 90s, and that's, I believe it was 10. Oh, wow. Awesome. Well, that's great. His, his list would probably be closer to yours. You know, so if you were to build the list in the 90s. Well, I did. If you go to, well, Pink Smoke, we did a whole crazy extensive best movie of the 90s. And it goes, it's everything from Gremlins 2 and Safe to Bad Lieutenant and, you know, Bo, Bo Trevi. Like, it's all over the place. Yeah, I know, like, yeah, it was uh, five of us. We ranked, we all did our own top 50 ranking. And then Cribs did a whole thing to get the 50 out of each five of our lists. And then, yeah, it, it was... It was intensive. Yeah, I believe like Scorsese's two was like the Thin Red Line, and wow, oh yeah, yeah you're right. It would have been. Yeah. It would have been. It I bet like Cronenberg's Crash made it in there. He seems yeah. to have a lot of He's admiration a, for yeah. that. Oh, he loves oh, Cronenberg. Yeah, they love each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, and Scorsese definitely loves. And Heat's in there, and Breaking the Waves is in there. Oh, well, there you, yeah, there you go. And, and Eyes Wide Shut is in there. You know, so. safe. I wonder what Martin no, Scorsese thinks is safe. I hope he likes safe. I'm sure he loves safe. Yeah. How can you not love safe? True. How can you not love Todd Haynes? Yeah. Well, before we move on from Bad Lieutenant, I just want to call attention to one thing. I wish this is something filmmakers would try more frequently, and I guess this is what makes it so special, but this idea of getting a couple of actors in a hotel room, and apparently it's incredibly uncomfortable for the cast and crew, but just had to have Kaitel and a couple of girls with like booze and coke and music and just find the scene or explore the scene yeah. for hours on end. Like when Kaitel's sitting there like pouring vodka in a glass and like forgetting the glass and just chugging from the bottle and obviously, you know, weeping openly while standing there with his tiny shriveled little dick. It's like, dude, <laughs> at least like tap it a few times beforehand. Just get a little life in there before you, uh, you know, <laughs> before you go on camera. But, you know, no fear whatsoever. But they're not a lot of directors who are willing to explore the dark side and all the actors are just so game. And it's just, I, I feel like... I don't think it's underappreciated. Obviously, a lot of people recognize this movie for yeah. what it was when oh, it yeah. came out. But maybe now that it's been like 28, Almost 30 years. years later, yeah, man. that it's starting to kind of fade. And wow. I think it's just it's such an incredibly shocking and awe-inspiring experience. I just feel like it needs to be... Uh, every opportunity I get, I want to just remind people that yeah. Bad Lieutenant is out there. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's, well, Absolutely. You know, and, 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 and it's funny, you know. Al Pacino wins the Academy Award that year for for oh, Set of a Woman, woman. You which know, seems like Mr. Rogers by comparison, right? And, and that also seems like another kind of gift. Well, that you was know, residual. Award. Like well, that was you know residual. another yeah like all the stuff and no hate to Scent of a Woman, but it's also like you know all the stuff that he had done up 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 and to had that never point, won. You know, yeah. you know, yeah. But not that I want to make this about Oscars, because at this point, you know, none of that matters. I think the cultural relevance of Oscars are in the, is in the past. It'll never reclaim those heights. And in five or ten years, kids won't even know what the fuck the Oscars are. Yeah, that's yeah. my prediction. But it. But oh god, I'm thinking about that guy. 
James, we sat next to when we saw The Witch. <laughs> that guy. <laughs> were you talking about how we should have two Oscars a year, every six months, and it's this whole and he was just and how like, he wanted like yeah. everybody to be able to vote on it and all this stuff, and yeah. it was like he was just so worked up about. it. I was like, who cares? It's like yeah. your love of a particular movie. The Oscars should have no impact yeah. on, on what you think about a particular movie. Yeah, but 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 Keitel's performance in that is is ab- is above and beyond anything that he ever had he ever anything that he's ever done before or since. And also Yeah. Even, the, the, the moaning. You know, I love even, it. but so what? Like, and and you know, you get it in Reservoir Dogs too at the very end. At the you very know, he's end, holding yeah. Tim Roth and But he uses it yeah. a bunch of bad lieutenant oh, yeah. to, to oh, yeah. the end. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. You know, but it, but it's it, it, at the end of the day it's also one of those performances that you know very very rare that an actor has come that close. I mean, for me personally, and I'm sure that markets would agree with me, I think the only actor that has come that close in terms of giving an honest, real, raw, naked performance like that is Michael Fassbender in Shame. Another NC-17 rated movie, but that, you know, explores demons and sexuality in a way that's more adult than most films allow themselves character to be. says certain things now where there would be career ending. Like when he's listening to the radio and he ha- issues a river of profanity that I will not repeat. Yeah, right. Yeah. But it's like, oh, when the, the anger in his voice when he says it, he's holding nothing back. Yeah. And it's like, whoa, this is a, we are watching a different kind of movie going experience. And I got to say, even that going back to New York, just names like, Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, like that era of the Mets is is such New York. It's so so it's so New York. So Absolutely, also, the, the good old fashioned cokehead baseball players who were yeah. total fucking rock stars. Especially Daryl Strawberry had a. He was not afraid to party. Dwight Gooden too. What am I talking about? Yeah, I'm not trying to. Yeah, they, yeah, they, no, they, no, absolutely. They were both partying, you know. And 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 to think about. Um, I love how even like the coke dealer in this movie is like, man, that stuff's gonna kill you. It's like, yeah, <laughs> are you yeah. A drug counselor, or are you a drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's so dark. I mean, this is the closest you come to like really circling the drain, and I find it irresistible. And I don't know how many times I've seen it, but I find it just absolutely fascinating every single time. Yeah, no, and 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 also if you look at the work of Abel Ferrara at that time too, I mean, he was pretty fearless himself. I I think Peak this Ferrara. is yeah, yeah. yeah. between yeah. this and King of yes. New York, this is yes. You know, but but then there's also an argument to be made for something like the funeral, which at this point oh, is, I love it. Is even before the addiction, like I think that, that just that period, yeah, and the nineties, the nineties, a, a year later, yeah, yeah. with with Madonna, yeah, who famously, it's weird because like, the, the other events. night actually they did well, they didn't get along for uh, for that, but then like two years later, they still ended up together in in Blue in the Face, and I also fit there, there's such a natural in Blue in the Face. When she kind of like at the end of her routine, she grabs Harvey Keitel and like kind of humps at him. The laugh that Harvey Keitel gives that I don't think that was acted. That was like a very genuine, real thing. But it, I always find that weird that like she spoke out against more so Ferrara, t- to be honest. But she also wasn't happy with Keitel. And then they were in another movie together like two years later. But um, I DVR um, regularly Saturday Night Live. I have it programmed. To record whatever One of the, episode that's such a great that, when he hosted, and so that yeah. wound up on my DVR last week, and it's him and Madonna. Madonna was the musical guest, which was oh I didn't even oh, yeah. I forgot. Which, see, I'm, I'm stuck on the two the skit where he's trying out the pinky ring. He's the mob guy, and he's trying to see like if the pinky ring goes like with his mannerisms. Well, I thought that and that's the Joe Pesci. 
Oh, you're right. Damn. Oh man, no, the subway one. Though, the subway one, where everybody's going. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Funny. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. I'm getting mixed up. The Joe Pesci pinky ring one's great though. Yeah. The, yeah. Which which he was in the Public Eye, which is a good movie. If you haven't seen that. Oh, but, that's what he was hosting for. Yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah. But Keitel, I mean, it was 93. I mean, what was he? And, and and so I watched his monologue, which was only about Madonna. And But I couldn't tell you what they were what they were there. I mean, it could have been for Dangerous Game, but no one mentioned it. Right, right, at right. All. And it's funny. I revisited Dangerous Game the other night in preparation for the episode because I just was mm-hmm. like, eh, we should watch it. Never liked it. Didn't like it then. Don't like it now. I watched really? it one time before our Ferrari episode a couple of years ago. I can't remember a single shot. No, I can't see the more James I learned about Har- the more yeah. I learned about Harvey Keitel and how like he puts himself in his movies. Still to this day, I mean Tommaso, to some degree. You mean part, it, 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 yeah, Abel Ferrara. It's part Willem Dafoe, but it's part you know Ferrara also. But just like you know. Dangerous Game and Matthew Modine's character in Mary is all able for art. Like so, the fact that I know about him and I know, like, I actually appreciate him. The you know him him doing that. But. I, you know, I I'm just thrilled with the kind of career that Abel Ferrara is having now. Oh, a thousand percent. You know, yeah, a thousand you know, percent. you you. I hope they, I hope him and Kaitel can get back together because it, it you know it's interesting. Gogo Tales was supposed to be. It wasn't supposed to be Defoe. It was because it's funny you mentioned how. You know, this role in Bad Lieutenant was Christopher Walken at first and then went to Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel was supposed to star in Go-Go Tales to the point where I remember around 2004, he was on the IMDb. He got he recast was, as the Rottweiler? Yeah. <laughs> 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 he was on the IMDb page and then something happened. And he put, but And I also love the fact that he was also open about like Abel Fraud was like, I just wanted to make my killing of a Chinese bookie. But just uh, he wanted it to only focus on just inside the strip club. And I was like, that sounds so amazing. And it's still a great movie. Willem Dafoe is great in it. But I, I, I want to see those two. I want to see Ferrara and, and, and uh, Keitel yeah. back together. No, absolutely. One more time at least. So Well, after Bad Lieutenant, we get what, for my money, is like just a couple of years where Keitel can kind of do no wrong. Like yeah. Jane Campion, The Piano, awe-inspiring stuff. That's a great movie. This yeah. is where we see my, my first exposure, Rising Sun and The Point of No Return, which both came out in 1993. Pulp Fiction, obviously, plays The Wolf in 1994. Clockers in 1995. Yeah. He works with uh, Theo Angelopez and with Ulysses Gaze in yes. uh, 1995. Yeah. And then we get this doubleheader, which we alluded to earlier, but Smoke and Blue in the Face, which for me is kind of the essence of what New York filmmaking is all about. So, Mr. Cotto, when did you first catch this uh, remarkable double feature? Oh, I saw it in theater. I saw did it in you? theater with my oh, grandmother. Man. Yeah. Oh, that's at awesome. At the Community Theater in Fairfield, Connecticut, they, wow. that, when oh, it wow. ran as an art house. Wow. And, wow. Uh, and, and I went, you know, on the... You know, when the Harvey Keitel's in this, let's go. Yeah. And did you I, know who Wayne Wayne was? Wayne 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 Wayne. Wayne. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I knew about the Joy Luck Club. I don't think I had seen it, but I, I saw Chin is missing in college. But for whatever reason, I just didn't see these, even though they were during my college years. We saw that in uh, early, on, like seventh grade. We saw it in school. We saw we we watched the Joy Luck Club in yeah, school. No, I didn't see that. I didn't see that then. But I, you know, and and, and remember, you know, at this point. Miramax was pumping out 
In their prime. Yeah. They were the pumping ta- out they were the taste, so much the tastemakers. Well, they were acquiring and producing. So whether you were a foreign film, whether you're like Koslowski's Three Colors trilogy or Quentin Tarantino making Pulp Fiction, Miramax was defining give- this whole era. They basically took what was a kind of an organic indie film scene and took it mainstream. You know, and, and so if you wind up renting, you know, movies that are coming out at that time, and catching, you know, the coming attractions at the front of these movies. Like, of course yeah, you want to Yeah, with that blue Miramax logo. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. you know, but but no, I mean, you know, Smoke was one of those movies that I remember going to see the weekend or two after it opened. And, you know, and, 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 and but going based on the fact that Harvey was in it. And I remember that being one of one of the most important I mean, just in terms of the raw going. cast, these flicks are jaw-dropping. For, for people who have maybe not seen these, like myself, because I'm 44 years old and just saw these for the first time, Marcus, how would you make the pitch for Smoke and Blue in the Face for the Unconverted? We both got a little tipsy from the wine, I remember. And after the meal was over, we went out to sit in the living room where the chairs were more comfortable. I had to take a piece, so I excused myself, and I went to the bathroom down the hallway. And that's when things took another turn. It was ditzy enough doing my little jig as Granny Ethel's grandson, but what I did then was particularly crazy, and I've never forgiven myself since. I go into the bathroom and stacked up against the wall next to the shower. I see a pile of six or seven cameras, brand new, 35 millimeter cameras, still in their boxes. I've never taken a picture in my life, much less ever stolen anything. But once I see those cameras sitting there in the bathroom, I decide I want one of them for myself. Just like that. And without even thinking about it, I pick up one of the cameras, tuck it under my arm, and go out back to the living room. I wasn't gone more than three minutes. But in that time, Granny Ethel had fallen asleep. Too much Chianti, I suppose. I went out to the kitchen to wash the dishes. She slept through the whole racket, snoring away like a baby. There was no point in disturbing her, so I decided to leave. I couldn't even write her a letter to say goodbye, seeing that she was blind and all. So I just left. I put her grandson's wallet on a table, picked up the camera again, and walked out of the apartment. And that's the end of the story. Wow, because they're very... Di- so, I, 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 I wouldn't know how to get them close. It's just kind of so... <clears throat> yeah, smoke. It's it's one of those things where, like, it was in the, it was also in the midst of that post-pulp fiction era where it's just like, you know, it's a multi-storyline, somewhat anthology film where just, like, a lot of the characters are connected about just life in Brooklyn. Um, and it's really great, blah, blah, blah. And then I'd say, like, as a companion to it, there's this like 80 minute kind of experimental sequel to it and it's got Lou Reed and Jim Jarmusch and it's just this totally random movie Michael J Fox 
has these cut off Daisy Dukes and he plays this weird <laughs> census taker. Roseanne Barr's Roseanne wife. Bar, yeah. So I, I, I would just do it like that. Aggressively yeah. Aggressively like, making out with Harvey Keitel. Yeah. I'd yeah. say it, it, it's a more like it's just like it's it's almost like with smoke, not blue in the face. Smoke. It's one of those things. Like, hey, if you like Pulp Fiction or Two Days in the Valley, watch Smoke, even though that's totally a little misleading. <laughs> It's well, still the me, same yeah, smoke, structure. Smoke is kind more of. novelistic in yes, flavor. Yes, very much so. And then second, stick around for the the little you know the, the 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 unofficial sequel to it, which I what I love so much about well, smoke is just one of those, it's just great. Forrest Whitaker, Hal Paranol, everyone's great. Smoke though, I, I just remember <laughs> so watching Blue in the uh, watching Smoke, and you see like. Malik Yoba, Giancarlo Esposito, like all these, like like Victor Argo's in it for a second. And it's just kind of like, Jared oh, Harris. Jared Harris. It's like, I want more of these guys. And then Smoke kind of give it kind of like answers that. Uh, blue in it, the it face answers gets, that. Blue in the face, sorry. Yeah, I mean, apart it, from it, William it Hurt, that. It's like the gang's all here. Yeah, well, Forrest Whitaker, but whatever. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to, I just love, I think Do you Malik love, Yoba. in in, you, in, in you have in, a preference in, in, of the two? Well, Smoke is the better movie, but the movie I've seen more. I've seen. Blue, I've watched Blue in the Face way more times than than than. I, I was feeling the same. While I was watching. I was like, Smoke is like the Oscar contender, of or like the respectable film that would play for like three months at the Angelica. But I was like, I think I'm enjoying Blue in the Face more. Yeah. Malik Yoba is so funny, in that like he's so as as like in the, Blue in the Face. In, in in Blue in the Face, he only has like one scene a very intimidating scene in in smoke he's the drug but he plays a different character the creeper in in, in blue in the face where he's just this guy who like everything about that when he's when he's just like you know he's asking the guy like oh he's he's challenging Giancarlo carlo esposito's like nationality tommy finelli like everything about his his scene and then he comes back at the end you know, when he's just, he, he tries to be this Afro Cuban guy. <laughs> and he's a like, Cuban cigars. And he's just like, I don't know you, okay, man? I don't doing know. A, doing a bad about, Scarface man? impression. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, everything about that. What, what, yeah. what I loved about that, the first scene, though, is like it implodes so much about like so much to like ongoing conversation today about like race and identity. And I feel like That's people true. love locking people into like very narrow, rigid definitions of like who they can be. And I love how Giancarlo Esposito is challenging him on some of his assumptions and the way it's going back and right. forth. And then in the middle of the scene, Victor Argo strolls in with a guitar and of all things starts playing fucking Hank Williams. A Puerto Rican blues. playing country. Yeah. And then and then Malik Yoba comments. He's like, what's with this neighborhood? You Puerto Rican. Why are he's you like, playing country music? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's a very... Yeah, and so I, I just found too. the scene so remarkable and so and he refreshing. Tells the white yeah. guy. He's like, you're probably black. You're black, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. Every, yeah. I love that whole... Yeah, yeah That's beautiful. Great. Yeah. yeah, I I was I was just Lily Tomlin, yeah. Lily Tomlin, in that like one scene where she's disguised as like a homeless man looking, looking for waffles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> everything. Yeah, ah, oh, that movie's so great. And going back to I, th- I think we said this off record. I just I wish, yeah, I want I I wish I could. We could still have it, but I definitely want more Jarmish Keitel. Like I want to see Keitel in it. You know, under a Jim Jarmish film. And Keitel, hey. I feel like a great actor is willing to step back. And just let another actor hog the spotlight. And Kaitel is just kind of laughing and shrugging, and just yeah. kind of enjoying Jarmish telling these stories. Who's who's not? He's not when when Jarmish shows up in other people's movies, like for one or two scenes. He's actually kind of charming. This is like the most charming because he's talking about how like it's funny that he talks about like in action movies. 
when people run out of bullets. Like, why do they throw the gun away? Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. guns are expensive. They cost a lot of money. Can't you reload it? So just stuff like that. And yeah, for people who like to smoke, and I know nobody smokes these days. They all fucking are uh, jeweling or whatever. But yeah. I was just about to talk about yeah, that. But great rants about smoking. Yeah. Well, even yeah. the opening rant about measuring the way to smoke and how oh, and smoke, yeah, you, yeah, know, Sir, yeah. you know, Sir Walter Raleigh and that whole thing. Yeah. I mean, it's funny we're sitting here talking about that. We're drinking Jameson and we're having a good time. Yeah. We haven't you're, seen each you're other. Craving a smoke. I haven't had a cigarette in in seven years. Wow. And I oh. yeah, it's been that long. Oh. The, I mean, you remember I used to smoke a pack a day. I do. With some I do. smokers, the urge never goes away. No matter. And how I miss it. And especially talking about it now, like well, how great it would be to just sit here and light up a cigarette and. It's a really good cigar. You know, are really close by, but sadly, you know, COVID right now. You, you know, know, but you know, but you know, I played, was. What I love about the cigar bar as well, they play James Bond movies on a loop in the middle of this like rack of books. And anyway, I was like, oh, this is a place for for wow. me. Yeah. I don't even oh. like tobacco that much. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I listen. I was pack a day, and and I enjoyed all of it. I enjoyed the look. I enjoyed how it made me feel. I enjoyed oh, the story about the guy in Leningrad who's written a novel, but he's out of uh, rolling papers, and, and it's he like, smokes you know, his book. He smokes his book one page at a time, like you know. I don't know how many millions of civilians and soldiers died as the Nazis and Russians just fought to the bitter end. Like my favorite story about Leningrad is that soldiers on the Russians that were sent into battle unarmed, and they say, "Look, you're unarmed now, but in a matter of minutes, the guy beside you is going to get shot. So you pick up his rifle and you keep fighting." Yeah. Like that's what yeah. it was like to fight in Leningrad. But that story about the guy smoking his book and it was his only copy is just. The writing in these two movies, and I know the second movie is largely improvised, but I, I, I guess the Keith David scene is one of the few that's really written in uh, Blue in the Face. That's an important uh, thing, too, because I think people like to romanticize Jackie Robinson, and he was this trailblazer and blah, 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 but then it's like, this professional athlete died before he got to 50 years old because of like a lot of the heartache and stuff. Like pe People always stop like, oh, he broke racial barriers, and then it was... And then it was over. But it's like there's so much more to his life. And in that one little scene with Keith David, it kind of explains and a lot. How much of, it uh, means the how much the man meant to Victor Argo. How he's on the verge. He's almost trying. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he is. And he's That's just so overwhelmed with meeting his hero. I love the fact that they inserted at least one scripted scene just to give us that kind of emotional resonance. Yes. Oh yeah. And going back to smoke, and you know, smoke, you know, comes from, you know, a New York Times article that. Paul Auster wrote about you know, a Christmas story, which appears at the end of the movie, you know, Augie Wren's Christmas story. And I highly recommend that if you have 15 minutes to kill, to look up Paul Auster reading Augie Wren's Christmas story, and it will oh, bring okay. you I've never to done tears. That. Oh. Yeah, I actually think I sent it to you not too long ago. And, oh, you did know, you? Oh, yeah, probably. Oh, okay. You know. All right. And because um, I had gotten stoned one night and put it on and <laughs> listened, and I was completely hooked by it. But you go back and look at that scene where Harvey is telling you the story. For like, it's like a 12-minute It's a 12-minute shot, shot. And the camera's just slowly dollying in. And, they, and then, and then it's like, yeah, like, you're such a bullshit and then, and then And then it focuses on, on his lips. And, and then the genius thing about the movie is that when once the credit rolls, they show you, you the scene. You yeah. get you get the movie out yeah. of it too. Yeah. You, you know, black and white yeah. short. Yeah. You know, you're innocent when you dream. Which I have to admit That's was a great my song. was my first real exposure to Tom Waits. I hadn't seen Down by Law and anything up to that point. So that's funny you say that. That's that movie is when I learned he was a singer. I thought he was an actor. <laughs> I always and and it, when you think about it though, his his connection to the Coppola family. His him That's being in the true. drama stuff, it's like shortcuts. I had short, seen him in shortcuts a, exactly. before that. Exactly, it's enough to. Oh, I guess this Tom, he's just 
He's got Bram this Stoker's Dracula. Voice. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, you know, Rumblefish. No, and and then it's like, the oh, he's singers. a singer. Yeah. And <laughs> one of the greatest singer-songwriters we've ever known. Like, he deserves to be mentioned alongside of people like Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and Paul McCartney. Like, he's... Sure. You know, he's that. Although I'm in Twitter jail because of Paul McCartney's people at Universal Music Group. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, but I'm Live and Let Die from a couple of years ago. That opening title sequence got me in Twitter jail oh where uh, Universal Music Group here in New York filed a DMCA notice with Twitter. And they gave me a list of the business. I mean, they gave me a copy of the business letter and of all the accounts, I guess, suspended along with me. So it's just like, it was almost like they... Like the beginning of uh, Sea of Love when they invite everybody and just like arrest them all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of do well, that to all of us. Well, it's residual for Guns N' Roses and Axl Rose not asking permission to record Live and Let Die. Oh, That's you. why you're, you know, they have to crack down on it now. Wow. But even if they give me my account back, I'm like, I've got like 10,000 tweets that are where I'm just as guilty of breaking just as many rules. So Yeah, sure. We shall see what we shall see. Yeah. Well, any final notes on Smoke and Blue in the Face? Because while I was getting prepared for these, I was... A, blown away that I just somehow just completely overlooked these, but also just overjoyed that I got to discover these remarkable, just overwhelming movies that, once again, are just a reminder of just how cool the New York filmmaking scene was from like the early through the mid-90s. And it's like, whether you want to talk about friggin' Hal Hartley or Spike Lee or Scorsese or Ferrara or Wang Wang or any of these people, but it's just like, it was just like a fucking, it's the deepest treasure trove imaginable. And it's funny because I remember seeing the trailer to kids when we saw Smoke. Another minute. Oh, did you? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's what was trailered at the head of, at the head of Smoke was that. That was late summer of 95. Yeah. yeah. So that was, that's. You know, I mean, that's just a perfect example of, you know, of what was going on here. Well, we were talking earlier, I think off mic, about how cinema sometimes can feel disposable in 2021 and how it's like whether it's a, a cat kissing a baby video or you're talking about Lawrence of Arabia, they're all just labeled as content. But in the same interview I referenced earlier where the Brett Snell's interview with the producer who was talking shit about James Toback, they were talking about how in the 90s, how cinema had these events that really seemed to mean something. And you mentioned kids. When kids opened at the Angelica, a giant limousine pulls up on opening night and Madonna hops out just as a moviegoer and just wanted to see kids. And it's like, mm. can you imagine just like, I don't know, like uh, Miley Cyrus, like, you know, pulling up in a limo now because she wants to see like the latest Avengers movie or whatever. Like, just, like, just, right. yeah. It just seems like in New York in the 90s, cinema was a cultural, like, you know, just like it was like, like an electric current running through the city. That was a big, you know what also I remember too watching MTV because I think because kids played it was late summer and went into the fall when school started and they had like Harmony Corinne and Larry Clark on MTV and they, they aired it. They were just like, Hey, skip school, go see this movie. And it's just like, that shit would never happen now. They were just encouraging a network like MTV was encouraging kids to go skip school and, and, and see this movie. Yeah, virgins. They're the best. Oh <laughs> man. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a dark flick. Well, let's move into, I think peak, Celeb. I think in the late 90s, whether you're talking Christopher Walken or Harvey Cattell or Steve Buscemi, all these character actors suddenly became giant celebrities where they could just pop up like in a fucking Michael Bay movie or a Kangaroo Jack or whatever and get yeah. these big giant paydays. Monkey trouble. Yeah, and you, but, you, <laughs> but you start seeing Cattell popping up in a ton of stuff, and he's at this point he reaches legendary status. But there are some good flicks in there. I and mean, you mentioned earlier, Holy Smoke. I mean, he and Kate Winslet, they really they go for it yeah. in, the, in this yeah. flick in, in a lot of ways. There's still some interesting things in here. Like, I think his accent in From Dust Till Dawn is a little strange, but it's still... Yeah, because he's trying to be, like, Southern, yeah, he's like, but not. She, yeah, he's yeah. Like trying to be country, and it's like... Country, yeah. 
Yeah, it just I, I'm not buying. Just be it. yourself. Yeah, just 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 yeah. be Harvick. In the Duelist, you didn't need to go French. So right. and from right. Russell Dawn, right. you don't need to go country. Right. But uh, any particular favorites from the late '90s, where once he's like his, the, we have the second coming of Harvey. What are the highlights? City of Industry. Him and Steven Dorf. It's another. Oh, that! Oh my gosh! That's that, another. That, crime that's like a movie. video store classic. So, yeah. Who's the director? I've never seen it. I don't remember. I just I, I know I, the box. I rented that one night random when I was working at Tommy K's, a video store that or both me and Rob Ryan, worked at. It was one of yeah. those movies that I guess Orion had on the shelf or Orion was trying to continue to, you know, try and just, you know, but I remember that one with Copland. I mean, you know, at this point, you know, Copland happens and if you watch Copland, everybody's in that movie. Everybody from De Niro to Leota yeah. to Edie Falco, to, you know, to you know, Peter Berg to yeah. you know, we had T-1000. A, it was actually a to, rush event in my fraternity. I think it was my third year at UVA. But we rounded up like 40 kids and we're like, hey, we're all going to go see Copland and we hope you'll join our fraternity, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, but we just we just we packed the theater with well, a bunch and, of knuckleheads. I think we got them all baked and brought in booze. And Well, and, yeah. and the thing with Copland, too, is that there was so much hype surrounding this return to form for Sylvester Stallone that it was... But no one really showed well, up for it. People forget that around like the mid '90s, with like Judge Dredd and stuff like that, he was on the way out. And he like prior Especially to like Inglorious, not, not Inglorious, but um, uh, Expendables, and he was out. He was basically out. But Copland was an attempt at make, basically regaining his uh, his footing. But and it and it didn't and it didn't work the way that it should. But have. But it worked just fine for James Mangold. I mean, here he is doing like Indiana Jones yeah, movies did. and yeah. fucking Logan like, and, and, and especially Ford v Ferrari. Yeah, and especially coming off of like you know. I mean, that's your second movie. Yeah. You know, I mean, but Heavy's the first gr- 20, really 24 years movie. later, James Mangold is an A-list director. Yeah, so. Oh, yeah, no. And and, and and Copland is is extremely overlooked at this point, I think. Yeah, you but know? at the same time, I do but think not, people look at, and it's like, oh, this is like the best acting Sylvester Stallone's done. I think when it does, people just, you got to think for a second, and then it's like, so, oh, yeah. I'm all about Cobra. This is where the law <laughs> oh. stops. And I, I don't start. deal with psychos. Yeah. I don't negotiate with psychos. <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't think that, you know, I think Copland, you know, has has been kind of forgotten, but it's one of those movies that if you turn it on, you're hooked. And then in the last reel, I mean, when it when things get crazy, yeah, you know, yeah, some it's like a Western. It's like a scene. It's a total Western. I I only saw that one time with that Russian. Admittedly, I was wasted when I saw it. But the one scene that I remember is De Niro. With the sandwich going like, oh, and you blew it. You had like, a chance <laughs> and you blew it. Yeah, that, yeah. that's the scene that sticks no, no, with the, me. For me, the scene, the scene that sticks in my head is 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 closer toward the end of the movie when the T one thousand Sir Robert Patrick. I just knighted Robert Patrick because he's the absolute <laughs> man. You know, he shoots, he he fires the gun, yeah, and, and in, 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 in the yeah. other ear, yeah. and. You know, he has to go through this climax death, and yeah. it's and it's and the an other incredible from like a swimming accident. Or? Yeah, trying to save the save beautiful Annabella Skiora, yeah. yeah, from Harvey Skiora. Weinstein. I mean, yeah. excuse me, from some, from a <laughs> drowning car, yeah. which is funny how she winds up in that movie. Not funny, but you know, it's kind of weird as she like not, winds not, up. Not not ha ha funny. Not ha ha funny. <laughs> not a like couple. a clown. Because you know she shows up, you know she's in a few Abel Ferrara films. Yeah, but but showing that. up in Copland in a clearly a Miramax movie, it was oh because like, th- oh for some reason I thought those Abel Ferrara oh no no they no Abel yeah, Ferrara but, but Cop, was but, like but Copland yeah you know definitely. showing up in yeah. Copland you know? yeah and then you really don't see or hear from her again until The Sopranos kind of true you know well that I mean Criminal Intent 
but yeah, still, I you mean, know. We, 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 we oh, mean Law and Order that was, Criminal Intent? Yeah, that or? was after what am I talking? That was after The Sopranos. Never mind. Never Remember, mind. Oh, she was great in um, Find Me Guilty, Sidney Lumet's movie with Vin yeah, Diesel. Vin Diesel, Diesel Peter Dinklage. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that the last movie where Vin Diesel had hair? Yeah, where he wore that toupee, yeah. <laughs> that fake hair piece. All right, well, let's talk 21st century where Harvey Weinstein enters... Harvey Keitel. We're right, not. What did I say, Harvey Weinstein? You said yeah, Weinstein. Oh, man. No. <laughs> <Where> <laughs> Harvey Keitel enters the kind of aging gentleman of the of global cinema period, where every once in a while something really remarkable will happen. Whether you're talking to like the Irishman or yeah. youth or whatever. So, 21st century. We're we're in the we're in the the back nine of the uh, the podcast. Yep. Lay it on me. What are y'all's faves from the 21st century, starring this great legend of the cinema? Yeah, you know, there's another one. A more recent one, very recent. Um, Life on Mars on ABC. <laughs> uh, you know the the Painted Bird was big, at big, least a at big least, Martin Kessler favorite. Yeah, yeah and, and and like in that art house realm, you know that that was a big thing. But also, you know, in that art house realm, just like a couple years prior, you know, I think Youth is kind of the the best example. When the poster from the movie alone is like, oh, sweet yeah, baby Jesus, yeah. But Kaitel and Michael Caine sitting in a pool. Aging men, old. Let's be, let's be honest. Old men yeah. looking up as this Italian goddess strides yeah. in, who looks like she's carved out of marble. Yeah. And you couldn't ask for a better movie poster. Yeah. Sorrentino and, keeps going up in my estimation. I, mean, I, I I enjoyed La Gran Belleza and I enjoyed Youth, but then watching the Young Pope and the New Pope, those floored me. And I really enjoyed his ones about the. Um, I I'm gonna blank on the Italian Prime Minister. Loro. Is that was that? It was like well, there's El Devo, and then there's the one that he did about Berlusconi, which is called Loro. That's the most recent one. And I think there's a different version for America, or maybe it was a TV yeah, show no, in Italy, but a feature in America. Yeah, no, he cut it. It was a it was it was a two part movie. Yeah, yeah. So I saw the feature film version from 2018, yeah. which has some astonishing astonishing things in it as well. But Sorrentino, man. Ah, the last ten years have been good for him. I let, well, I think that the grand beauty is, or the, rather, the great beauty, great. Uh, the grand beauty, uh, the great beauty is one of my favorite films of the last ten years. I mean, it's the, it's one of the. It's funny. I'm Did a, you watch Young Pope and New Pope? I watched I the Young Pope. I, I started it. I didn't connect to it, and I was I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this all in one kind of epic sweep. But I have seen. His other films. I mean, New Pope is just bananas. Where, like every single episode starts with nuns doing like a strip club routine in front of like a neon cross and everything. It's like this is a guy who's Whoa. doing like auteur level deranged cinema, but for like HBO and like Sky and so on, like in a television format. And yeah, I think they're fucking remarkable. No, he's wow. he's okay. he's a he's a master. Yeah. I mean, you know, his yeah, you know, obviously he he comes from the school of Scorsese, but he really is the love child of of Scorsese and Fellini, mm. you know, at, at, you know, I mean, he might as well have been that article that Marty wrote, you know, the other day about Fellini, but I digress. The great beauty is one of, is one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years. So following or, or rather of the 2010s that decade. So when he follows it up with, with youth, 
you know strange bit of wrong real history surrounding youth it was, uh, it was the last to ep- it. last episode where my co-founders appeared on an episode together where i won't name names because i'm legally obliged not to one upset the other and the other refused ever to do another episode with the other one ever again but um that was the end of their affiliation so i had to start doing episodes separately with the two of them from that point on <laughs> oh, that's, funny. that's like early on when i started listening to wrong real uh you know it's re- crazy re- that re- you regularly. and i are not gonna i think we're right now we're right around we're hovering right around the exact moment where we did our first podcast together five years ago about Guy Madden. Madden. Yeah. No, yeah. we've passed it because it was January of but 2016. A fifth, actually, it was, it was, oh, yeah, so we're five years in a month. Over past. Five. Wow, yeah. yeah. No, but that was, um, did, uh, correct me if I'm wrong too, what, I'm not going to name names, but like when you also, when you did your end of the year episode of that year, the youth thing kind of came up again, not as intense, but it was one of those things where you you were just like, "Please let, let, let's let, let, let's just move on." It was well, one of those happened? like, right. just, "It was a." <laughs> we could talk about it off record. It, 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 it's a whole thing. But. Yeah, I had to sign a non-disparagement agreement about one former co-founder and the other co-founder. I still record with them and them, so people can fill in as they as they like. Sure. Yeah, no, DM on so this one. But anyway, but one of them really loved youth. The other kept trying to because out of petty bitterness trying to undermine the episode not as a way of criticizing the film because he didn't really care about the film one way or another he just wanted to derail the episode to upset the other person oh, and that's why they don't they stopped recording together yeah but. well you know what for me there was a there was a lot riding on on youth you know when it was when it you know when it was coming can he out. live up to the promise of the previous movie yeah. and and a lot of people would say that it doesn't I would be inclined to say it doesn't, but... But it doesn't matter. It's still a really, really still, good it's, movie. Yeah, it's still good stuff. Michael Caine's still incredible in it. and uh, oh, Michael Caine does some of his best work in it. So does Harvey. Also... So does Jane Fonda. I mean, she's that scene they yeah, have together. Yeah. And then the following scene of her like, on... You're talking about TV. TV shit. This yeah. is cinema. Like, That's also the first movie where I have to admit this, where I, I never... Th- I was always just like interested in her as an actress. And then I was just like, oh, Rachel Weisz is beautiful. Yeah, like I never uh, up until and like you know she'd been it's been a very long you know Going from the stealing, mummy stealing to beauty. whoever yeah. sti- everything and then finally mm. there's the overhead shot early on of her in the movie she's in and it's a just a mostly cut it's like a one piece bathing suit but just the way I'm like oh oh I get why some because fo- I had heard before that Rachel Weisz is beautiful and I'm just like I don't it's good no. she's a great actually I, I just don't beautiful. what do you mean and then stunning yeah not. Now I get it. And aging it. like Julianne Moore or Helen Mirren or some, that too. There's some actresses that too. who that are, too. or Julie yeah. Binoche. Like some actresses just keep getting. Kind That's of, a good comparison. Keep Julia getting Binoche. more and more sizzling. It and is. She's, yeah. she's one of those actresses. Yeah, she's she's, she's she's gorgeous. She's yeah. worse. And even or Paul De- Hayek. Like there's just some actresses who just age very very well. Yeah. And and in terms of other people in the film, I mean, even Paul Dano is really good in this too. And yeah, you know they. You know, there's a lot. There's a lot going on there. But Harvey has his, you know, his final scene in that movie is is. And is I love the conversation moving. where he and Michael Caine yeah. are talking about some of their past conquests and who they may or may not have slept with. Yeah. But like, even in my forties, when I'm hanging out with some of my friends who have known for like twenty, twenty five years, we're already starting to have those kind of conversations where you start trying to like perhaps exaggerate your conquests and minimize your failures and so on and so forth. But it's just youth is a very insightful movie about just the aging process, especially for creative people. Where I tell you can tell as a filmmaker, he's not the man he once was. Like you can tell at a certain point he was like a Cassavetes, but he's fallen slightly on hard times. Sure. Right. And he's kind of like utilizing like these younger folks to work with him and, and they all and, and it's also a very European thing 
for European film lovers, young European film lovers, to kind of idolize, kind of like, I hate saying has been or washed up, but like American filmmakers who once were great. Like that's a lot of time. And kind of there's that period. It's a very French thing. Yeah, and and he did that as an actor. We talked earlier, you know, he went to Europe to do movies. So there's also a lot of, I feel like there's a bit of Keitel in that character in, you know, in, in youth. So. Is he still shredded? I can't remember how, how he looked. I don't know the last time I've seen... Uh, I mean, look... Probably. He's one of the most muscular actors who ever fucking lived. But you know what? Yeah. Him and you know Mr. De Niro, you know, they're well-preserved for being, you know, in their late 70s, early 80s. I, I mean, Cattell's going to be 82 this year. Yeah, again. 1939. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, again, I mean, if go and look at the CBS Sunday morning interview. It's 10 minutes long. And, I mean, it, it was last year in promo of... Not so much in promotion of the Irishman, but it happened around that time. Yeah. He looks great. He sounds great. He's you know, yeah. he's a he's a true elder statesman at this point. Yeah, and he you know, he he's got a he's got a. Good I just worry we're gonna have a moment like with Christopher Plummer where he's making movies, making movies, making like oh he's gonna live forever, and then suddenly like, oh he just died like out yeah. and and, and yeah. you know rest in peace Christopher Plummer. Yeah. But you know all Absolutely. he did was. You know, he worked to the bitter end, and he yeah. he fell and banged his head, and that was it. There wasn't, you know, there was Shit. no. I almost do that like once a week in my apartment because my bathtub's kind of slippery and it's kind of curved on the side, and I'm like, "This is how I'm going to die. One of these days, oh, I'm man. just going to slip just a millimeter more than I just did, and they're going to find me like five days later when I've just been like rotting and making a smell, oh, <laughs> you know, no. you know, and that, no. and 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 you know what, and and Christopher Plummer, you know, now that you bring it up. You know, talk about talk about a career, and talk about a career that got richer as he got pinch hit yeah, for Kevin Spacey Absolutely. for Ridley Scott. You know, even but even like showing up beginners, in, well beginners, yeah. But then even as even as not as far back because it really, I mean, it's twenty years at this point. But like, you know, when he shows up in the Insider, Absolutely. you know, no one had really you know thought of him in that way in a really 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 long time mm-hmm. i mean my only reference to christopher Plummer up to that point was playing you know the reverend the reverend Worley in dragnet like that was like sure. i thought of uh, for me he's all, he will always be rudyard <laughs> kipling and the man who would be king but for my mother which i music, just watched yeah. for the first yeah. time which uh, what did you see for the first time the man who would be king just now about so six you, weeks ago so you got to have like a my the equivalent for me of like watching smoke and blue in the face sometimes it's nice to save the good ones like, have you seen Bitter Moon yet? Because I mean, you mentioned, no, no, you I mentioned last time. Oh, you, no, I, didn't oh, want, no, I know. It's Please, be great. there's it's, so it's great. much. But Bitter Moon's one of those ones like Fingers or Bad Lieutenant, one of these dangerous movies that there's just not that many of. I watched for the first time because um, Bill Tech threatened he wouldn't talk to me again. Uh, I had never seen To Live and Die in L.A. I watched that for the really? first time. Oh wow, yeah. Oh, that's a fun first. I don't time know if watch. that's one worth threatening. Him. I he like threatened it. me. He was like, yeah, hey, I'm not going to talk to you until you watch the movie. <laughs> but I could see Bill Tech, that being his kind of a movie that he would want you know, to so I, I mean, if you he know. said that about They All Laughed, I'd be like, oh, that makes sense. He made a documentary about no, it. Oh, right. Sure, yeah. sure. Which I've seen. Yeah, They All Laughed is really good. Yeah, well, all right. Well, really final funny. notes. Hyra Cattell, Mr. Mr. Penn, takeaways, conclusions, observations, anything that we have not said, now is your time. No, uh, he's just kind of a living legend. You know, of, of of cinema, great body of work that I think we all kind of touched great upon. Great body, period. He's great body, some, period. He's got some tits on him. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> he's got a great six pack, um, too. Even into his older age, it's just like there's so much to just kind of like 
choose from. He, he's he's as we're going over this podcast, and I'm trying to dig up notes. It's like, oh, you know, I actually haven't seen that. So he's one of those guys who like you can call yourself a Harvey Keitel fan and still not see. I think he's got a like lot 140 of stuff, movies so. or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah so. I believe that. So you know, also you know, he still kept that relationship uh, with Tarantino after you know Pulp Fiction. He shows up, his voice and then shows up in Glorious Bastard. Yep. So it's like you know, he's he's just he's a legend. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's 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 a total legend. This is when you call the booze is kicking. Really, like, yeah, you know, he's, no, he's, he's good. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that loaded. Uh, yeah, no, no, but but you know what? When he shows up and you see him, you know that you know he's going to take you on, on on a journey, and whether it's in a great movie or a piece of shit, you know, I mean, but you know, there's plenty of those movies out there that you know, especially now that you know he's kind of forced into doing, you know, something like. What's your yeah. least favorite Harvey Keitel performance? Oh, I, I don't know. I mean, if I were to say that, I would be knocking somebody's movie. You know, so I, I, I don't I really I haven't seen it since that... I saw it in the theater. I'm just going to say Point of No Return because I haven't seen it since 1993. might be a great performance. I, I, don't, I don't know, but I remember being kind of a cheesy knockoff of La Femme Mikita. So. Well, that's exactly what that yeah. movie is. You know, but, but you know, I mean... Look, I mean, he's had to he's had to do very low budget. Type. Actually, you know what? Fuck that. Little Nicky is my least favorite Harvey Keitel performance. So, so is, yeah. anyway, really? yeah, I think I think it's just the movie. So, <laughs> no, but actually, he, he does kind of do goofy shit. No, no, he does in goofy it. shit. So, in it and, okay, okay, you know. yeah. But I hope yeah. he got. I'm sure he got paid well. So. Well, and yeah. and so that's so so that was part of the story that I was going to say. So I had said that when I was in college, that was the first junket that I ever got to go on and interview, and I got to interview Sandler and. Alan Covert was there. All the all oh. the original suspects were there. Nice. Robert Smigel was there, and they gave out nice. books of the ambiguous. Who's the guy who directed it? Who Stephen Brill? Yeah, I have who, a Stephen Brill story. Who's in Sex Lies and videotape, videotape doing the Marlon Brando? Yeah, yeah. I have a Stephen. Brill I met story. him very briefly in the Sony Pictures commissary. I met nice. him briefly at this junket, and he looked, and he pulled me aside, and he looked at me, and he said, "You know, you got to look." And I was like. Really? And I go, yeah. And he go, and I go, well, I want to be a filmmaker. I want to be an actor. He goes, well, you should be an actor. Let me guess. And he was... gave you the same advice he probably gave me because he saw me reading the book. Uh, I think it's How the Jews Invented Hollywood. He said, stop reading books about movies. Just start making movies. I was like, but I like reading movies about books. About no. movies. <laughs> but I had asked him. I said, how did you get Harvey Keitel to do this movie? And he looked at me and he said, we called him and asked him. And that was his answer, well. answer to me. You know, so that was my my big my big little Nikki nice. story. Aside gotcha. from this awesome picture I have with me and Sandler hmm. for back in the day. But that being said, you know, if if you stumble upon any movie that Harvey's in, you're going to be you know, you're 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 not going to find the false note. I mean, even in something as as schmaltzy as Finding Graceland, where he plays an Elvis impersonator who truly thinks that he's Elvis Presley. Mm. You know, he he makes you believe that, you know, and all the great actors do that. And he's certainly one of the best. And, you know, hopefully we'll see him do, uh, you know, hopefully there's some young writer, director. Even better than being a great actor, he also is willing to lead the charge and attach his name as a producer and make projects happen. And I feel like actors who don't wait for movies to materialize, actors who actually create their own opportunities, those are the actors I have a lot of respect for. Well, and he's an artist, first and foremost. I mean, if you listen to any interview that he's done or, you know, it, to me, it, it, it's never been about, you know, that that bottom line, you know, making that big payday. Obviously, everybody's got to eat. But, 
you know, it's all about you know, he he talks about certain uh, projects taking random he, story about Harvey Weinstein versus Harvey Keitel and Bob De Niro versus Bob Weinstein. There's some restaurant in New York that got banned by De Niro and Keitel forever because they'd made a reservation. I can't remember who'd made the res- they'd made a reservation for Harvey and Bob, which for 20 years it always meant De Niro and Keitel. But then <laughs> the Weinstein oh. brothers had started making reservations as Harvey and Bob. And they'd gotten the reservations jumbled, and so De Niro and Cattell were like, take our picture because you're never going to see us again. Like, so anyway, they took, wow. their, took their business elsewhere. Wow. You know, and, and there's also you know anybody who wants to do a really, truly deep dive, and we really didn't get into this because you know, it's this podcast about movies, not about Me Too personal sex stuff, but just Google Harvey Keitel, Lorraine Bracco, New York oh. Magazine. And you'll find a, a rather fire. incredible yeah. article that also about included Edward James, Edward James Olmos. Olmos. Yeah. yeah. Talk about thing. someone who's yet to be canceled that should probably be. Yeah. Edward James Olmos? Olmos. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Edward James Olmos should be. But it's bigger than just that article. Yeah. yeah. Just, just check. Yeah. Just, just if you, do yourself a favor. and I got, I got a bit of a thing for Lorraine Bracco. Mm. Especially because of her body double in Sopranos. There's one scene where she used a body double. was like, oh, my God. I will never get that image out of my mind. Or huh. Traces of Red with her and Jim Belushi. Another uh, directive video, HBO yeah, I haven't seen type that one. skin oh, flick. Wow. Yeah. Well, Mr. Penn, bring us in for a safe landing. Where can people find your podcast, your social media, all yeah. that good stuff? What, what, out, what, do got, uh, what do you got cooking in the oven? PinlandEmpire.com. Uh, I'm on a Chantal Ackerman kick as far as like writing and stuff. And then also, I'm sitting on, maybe in a few weeks, I'll post a. Uh, I, I wrote some thoughts on Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks, which I liked very much. So, but the, but there's constant stuff going on. Pillin Empire, check out Zebras in America. Uh, our, our our good friend Shaka King uh, broke his soft broke the sophomore curse, and he came out with the Judas and the Black Messiah, which is doing really well. Uh, follow me at Pinland underscore Empire on Twitter. Um, yeah, if you have not listened to Marcus and Scott's episode of zebras in america with shaka king you should really take a look you should listen rather because there's a really in-depth discussion about um the way that shaka brilliantly uses music in judas and the black messiah and the podcast is worth checking out for that alone aside from just the pure ease and friendship of the you know the three of them clearly have but that seeing Judas and the Black Messiah and then going and listening to Zebras was was that episode was a real real treat. So yeah. I'm really happy for Shaka. Yeah, Thank no, I'm, I'm happy. Too. I'm congrats to Shaka because I think he made this great film which you should check out called uh, Newlyweeds, which actually it it had its premiere at Film Form back in 2013, and it's been you know about seven years between so films. Sh- so I'm hoping you know so now that Judas and the Black Messiah is first like big budget mainstream film is doing well we won't have to wait another seven years and also is you he can, gonna get driving miss daisy though because I feel he, like a he lot, wouldn't if, a lot if, of people uh, are talking about um the aaron sorkin flick and how it's gonna overshadow shaka kings and it's like it but, ended up not really you know yeah I, I i immediately thought that i was like oh he's doing that too but tech I, I, it's different eras of, of fred hampton's and, life and, so. and, and in all honesty it, this is a better film that's I'm what I'm saying. Yeah. But like, yeah. same way, like, do the right thing got overshadowed by driving Miss Daisy. It's like, is our come award season? Is it? A oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't. It seems like not. I feel like uh, until you just said that now, the the Chicago Seven film, I haven't heard about it in months. You know, at this point, so I guess that's a sign of. Well, you know, they are talking. I mean, the Chicago Seven movie is getting a tremendous amount of buzz. However, 
I think that Shaka's movie has come out right at the perfect time where if Warner's is doing their job the right way, they could really push this buzz into significant attention to the movie. It's and, and really well done um you know, piece of entertainment. And, you, and you can check out his short films too for free. Well, check out Laser Sism, which was his first collaboration with Lakeith Stanfield a couple years ago. And check out Moulin Yans. I that, was just going to say. That's the name of the film. I'm not saying it's the word. It's fucking shit. It's the name of the you've film. Seen, so. You've seen it? Yeah. 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 It's, oh, no. So, let me so tell you something. It's free on YouTube. It's, Get in it's the less house. Than five minutes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you know, all the time. You know, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. As, as, as I'm half Italian. I'm I'm not easily offended. You could make fun of me all, or, or make fun of my my ancestors or whatever all you want. This one though, just knocks it right out of the park. I actually sent it to my mother the other night, oh, who wow. was like, the "This is the greatest satire. thing I've seen." It's yeah. got it because there's so much love in there. Where you yeah. can tell there's love for Italian culture, or Italian cinema, etc. But so. the, but 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 those men can be such assholes, and I think that Shaka really. Really paints a really accurate picture in a satirical way. It's I watched it twice the other night. It was just really no, just I, a I lot saw it of years it. ago. But I yeah, I've seen it a number off. of times. Yeah. I try to recommend that to anybody who listen. But you know, it's also you know a lot of people you know don't understand how how the industry works and to see just what he's done in the last. 10, 11 years, yeah. you know, and especially having a, you know, a movie like Newlyweeds that was really, really good and that didn't get the distribution or the attention that it deserved and just the way that he worked and how hard he worked within the industry, within the system, directing, you know, work for hire TV stuff and putting his own mark on it really prepared him for this just yeah. really incredible film, you know, that, you know, you know, you know, yeah. You know, if you have HBO Max and you have it for free for the month, you really should take the two hours and watch it. There's yeah. good work in it. Yeah. Well, where can people find you online? I'm and at where Rob Cotto. Uh, Sadaka's show, etc. So Neil's show in the Key of Neil airs monthly on Sirius XM 50s on five um, this Friday. Well, Friday, February 19th um, starts his love songs episode. Next month, we're actually doing a, a show on movie musicals. So that was that was kind of you know fun to put together, but it's you know fifties on five Sirius XM for third Friday of every month the show premieres, and then there's five or six other airings throughout the month. Uh, you could find me on Twitter at Rob Cotto, um, and uh, you know that's that's where we're at with that. <laughs> that's where we are. Well, you can you used to be able to find me at Cole Brax, but for the time being, you could just find him at Rob Cotto. You can find me <laughs> at at Wrong Real or at Geeking Out. And uh, if you want some short form content, hunt down my uh, YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. We just crossed uh, twenty five thousand subscribers. So I'm all giddy and excited. And coming up in the near future, what the hell? Oh, we've got our big giant episode about the Searchers, which brings us back full circle to uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door, which is like a 20-minute rant about that movie by Harvey Keitel. So all roads lead back to Harvey Keitel. But we can't thank you enough for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. As the old expression goes, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.